Welcome to Skyway Audio Theater. I'm your host, Norman Gilliland. We have a college theme going for the first couple episodes tonight. College sports hero Frank Merriwell leaves school before an impending decisive baseball game to track down his missing father and locate a fabulous lost treasure. By 1936, when the model Yale student arrived on the silver screen, his adventures were like that, larger than life. The series began on radio as quarter hours in 1934, and then it came back 12 years later as half hours. And during his radio days, Frank's struggles with wrongdoers were uh, closer to home, home being the playing fields of New England most of the time and the surrounding towns and farms. Will Frank be suspended for the big game? We'll find out in this debut of the half-hour series. It's The Riddle of the Wrong Answer, The Adventures of Frank Merriwell from October 5th, 1946. NBC presents The Adventures of Frank Merriwell. There it is, an echo of the past, an exciting past, a romantic past. The era of the horse and carriage, gaslit streets, and free-for-all football games. The era of one of the most beloved heroes in American fiction, Frank Merriwell, the famous character created by Bert L. Standish. Merriwell is loved as much today as ever he was, and so the National Broadcasting Company brings him to radio in a brand new series of stories. Today, the riddle of the wrong answer, or... Gambling is the devil's pastime. The Yale football team is returning to New Haven from its preseason training camp at Blue Lake. Spirits are high, and as the train rushes along... Boys sing, Frank. The team seems in awfully high spirits. They are, Ensa. We had a very successful training season this year, and now everybody's anxious to get back to New Haven for that opening game Saturday. Is the Trinity team any good, Frank? Yes, they have a good team this year, I understand, but I think we'll win. Oh, of course you will. But just a minute, young lady. I didn't invite you to ride back to New Haven with us so that we could talk about football. What about that review history exam tomorrow? You were supposed to help me prepare for it, remember? Oh, I'm sorry, Frank. I got interested in the singing. Let's see, where were we? You were asking me questions. What's the next one? Well, let's see. Oh, there were 41 signers of the Mayflower Pact. Name as many as you can. Oh, that's an easy one. Here they are. Might as well play another hand, Sloan. It doesn't look like Merriwell's going to leave his seat for a while. What's he doing now, Cope? Can you see? It looks like he's still talking to that girl back there at the end of the car. I, I don't like this idea anyway, Sloan. It's, it's too uncertain. Now, wait a minute, Cope. I'm running this, and I say we try it. If we can get him into a little game, let him drop a couple of hundred, get him to sign an IOU, well, there you are. We'll have the hold we want on him. I wish those guys would stop that singing. And John Bradford. I think that's the lot, isn't it? Oh, Frank, that was wonderful. You named all 41 of them without a mistake. Well, I guess I'll pass the test, all right. Now I'd better take this book back to Jack Diamond. 
I'll be back in just a few minutes. Jack's up ahead in the next car. Hey, Frank. Hey, come on and sing with us, Frank. No, I've got something to do now. I'll see you later, fellas. Sure. All, All right, right. Let's start with Shall we, fellas? Here comes Merwell now, Sloan. Oh, good. Now let me handle it. Oh, pardon me. Aren't you Frank Merriwell, Yale fullback? Yes, sir, I am. Glad to meet you, Merriwell. Seen you play off. Thank you. My name's George Sloan, book salesman. Do a lot of business with your school. Say, uh, Mr. Sloan, ask Merriwell if he'd like to sit in on our little game. Yes, how about it, Merriwell? These gentlemen have just organized a friendly little game to pass the time. Well, no, thank you, uh... You know, they say that gambling is the devil's pastime. I don't indulge, gentlemen. Oh, come now, Merriwell. Surely a little friendly game. I'm afraid you'll have to excuse me, Mr. Sloan. I must uh, see a friend up in the next car. I told you Merriwell wouldn't fall for a simple trick like that, Sloan. Yeah, it would have been easier that way. But we'll have to try something else. Try it my way. He's sweet on that pretty girl back there, Insa Burge. You know my plan. And I can handle it. Well, Enza, how do you like riding from the station on the team's carry-all? Oh, it's fun, Frank, but what will people say when they see me up here? Well, if you ask me, Enza, they'll say this is the best-looking team we've had in years. Oh. <laughs> well said, Bart. Oh, look, we're coming to my uncle's house now. I'll take your things in for you. Here, Enza, I'll help you down. All right. There you are. Hurry up, Frank. We're all going over to Maury's as soon as we can load our bags. Oh, you go on with them, Frank. I'll wait here in the porch until my uncle comes. You sure you won't mind, Enza? Of course not. Go ahead with the team. All right, I'll see you later. Come on, Frank. Here, I'll give you a hand. All right, goodbye, Enza. Goodbye, Frank. Goodbye, boys. (laughs) Oh, what a bunch. (laughs) Oh, I hope my uncle gets here soon. Oh, oh, this isn't my suitcase. It's Frank's. Frank, wait. Oh, dear, they can't hear me. Oh, well, he'll be back for it. Miss Burridge? Oh, yes. What is it? My my uncle isn't here. I don't want to see your uncle. I want to talk to you. I'm afraid I don't know you. Of course you don't. But I happen to be a Yale fan, and I'm interested in the football team. Oh, I, I can't help you. I have nothing to do with the football team. No, but Frank Merriwell does. That's what I want to talk to you about. If you have anything to say that concerns Mr. Merriwell, I think you'd better go to see him. I'd rather talk to you about it. Please, I must ask you to leave this porch. Not until I've had my say. Get off this porch or I'll call for help. Oh, no, you won't. Let go of my own. You keep quiet if you know what's good for you. You're hurting me. Help! Shut up! Frank! I ran back. Hey, what's going on here? Frank, this man. Merriwell! Catch him, Frank! Oh, no, you don't! Take it easy, Merrill. Take it easy. Speak up. What are you doing here? Nothing. Nothing. I wasn't going to hurt her. Well, this is for bothering a lady. There. Now get up and get going. You show your face around here again, you'll get what's really coming to you. All right, Merrill. I'll go. But I won't forget this. I won't forget it. Are you all right, Ensign? Oh, yes, but... Frank, I, I don't understand. Who was that man? I don't know, but I don't think we'll have any more trouble with him. Oh, I hope not. I was really frightened. It's a lucky thing Bart threw the wrong bag down. 
Well, now I'll stay right here with you until your uncle comes home. Oh. I can meet the gang at Maury's later on. Hey, Bart, here comes Frank now. Oh, good, Pinky. Mac, hey, Mac. Will you set another place at the table here for Frank Merriwell? Yes, sir. Sure will, Mr. Bart. Oh, hiya, Frank. Hiya, Frank. Did you get the bag straightened out? Hello, everyone. Yes, Bart's all right now. Welcome back to Morris, Mr. Frank. Oh, hello, Mac. It's good to be back again. Have I time to eat before that history exam, Bart? Sure, Frank. Plenty of time. The exam's not until 3 o'clock. Oh, we don't even have to watch the clock, fellas. We'll know it's time to hightail it when we see Andrews leave. Andrews? Who's Andrews, Pinky? Professor Stout's new secretary. He's sitting alone over there at that corner table. See him? Oh, yes, yes, I see him. He's not a Yale man, is he? No, he isn't. No, he needs to know where he's from. Uh, pardon me, Mr. Merriwell, but there's a gentleman over there at the next table who wants you to autograph this book for his son. Why, certainly, Mac. Glad to. He said the little boy is a great fan of yours, Mr. Merriwell. It would please him if you'd write something personal. <laughs> Go ahead, Frank. This looks like your one chance to get your name in the encyclopedia. <laughs> That's the book he gave me, Mr. Merriwell. Don't mind Bart Hodge, Mac. He's trying to develop a sense of humor. <laughs> there you are, Mac. Uh, thanks, Mr. Merriwell. The gentleman's little boy be mighty pleased with this. Well, boys, what shall we have tea? Oh, whatever it is, we better eat it fast. We only have half an hour till the history exam, and there goes Andrews now. Hello, Woods. Mind if I talk to you a minute? You made a mistake. My name's Andrews. So I've heard. But you don't mind an old friend calling you by your right name, do you, Woods? All right, Sloan. What do you want? A little service on account of that $5,000 gambling debt you tried to run out on. I don't have the money, Sloan, and there's not much chance of my ever getting it with your hounding me out of one job after another. Well, let that be a lesson to you. You can't beat an IOU just by running away and changing your name. Not with George Sloan, you can't. Give me another chance. I'll pay the check. How? On your salary as secretary to a college professor? That would take about 20 years, wouldn't it? Well, it's the best I can offer. No, it isn't. I'm going to give you a chance to write that debt off right now. Well, listen here, Sloan. I can't afford to get mixed up in any of your shady deals. You'll here. do what I tell you to. I'm dealing this hand. What do you want? Now, listen, Woods. I mean, Andrews. I know all about your setup here with Professor Stout, and it's made just to order. Couldn't be better if I'd planted you up here in Yale myself. Get on with it, Sloan. Professor has a test at three, and I have to be there. I know all about that, too. Now, here's what I want you to do. As soon as that examination is over, the old professor will suddenly be called out of town. Now... All right, gang, signal 21, 35, 28, highs, one, two, three. Oh, that's a nice run, Frank. Well, thanks for that block, Bart. You really hit him. Okay, let's line up again. How about trying that 45 play this time, Frank? Okay, Bart. We'll certainly use that one Saturday, all right. Oh, now what? Farewell. I guess the coach wants you, Frank. Farewell. We come over here a minute. Right, coach. Be right back, gang. What is it, coach? Frank, I have some news for you. Bad news, I'm afraid. What's wrong? It's about that history exam you took yesterday afternoon. What's wrong? Did one of the team fail it? Yes, Frank. You. I failed? But, but, Coach, that's impossible. History is my best subject. Well, maybe so, Frank. I happen to know myself. You've always had an A in history, but here's the notice. You're on probation for a month. But, 
But that means I'll miss the Trinity game. And the three games that follow it, too. Is something wrong, Frank? What is it, Coach? Well, I've just been notified Marywell's on probation. He failed yesterday's history exam. Probation? You're joking, Coach. It's no joke, Bart. I'm out of Saturday's game. Well, what are we going to do? I think we'd better go see Professor Stout, boys. You're sure you passed that examination, Frank? I'm certain, Coach. Come on, we'll call on the professor now. I'm sorry, gentlemen, but there's nothing I can do. All the test papers are locked in Professor Stout's safe. When will the professor be back, Mr. Andrews? Well, I can't say, Coach. He received a telegram saying his mother is ill. He left immediately. But I'm certain there's some mistake. Maybe the professor got the marks mixed when he made out the list. If only I could see my paper. I understand, Merwell, but I have my instructions. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm due at the professor's next class. Just one more thing, Mr. Andrews. Did you see my exam paper? No. No, the professor read all the papers himself. Well, Frank, I guess that's that. It's too bad, Merriwell, but you know the rules and how strictly Professor Stout applies them. Come on, Frank. We'll take this higher. We'll go to the dean. Coach, it isn't within my authority to question the list of marks posted by Professor Stout. But, Dean Clark, look at Merriwell's scholastic record, all A's in American history until this last test. A failure is a failure, and I don't intend to create a precedent by interceding in Merriwell's behalf. But the circumstances in this case... Yale athletes have to pass their examinations before they may play football. That's the rule. Yale standards must be maintained, no matter what the cost. In case Professor Stout gets back before Saturday, do I have your permission to request a review of Marywell's exam paper? Yes, yes, that's quite permissible. But I'm afraid you should not count on the services of Mr. Marywell. Work your team hard, Coach, and we'll try to beat Trinity without him. Frankly, there's not much hope of that, but I'll do the best I can. Gosh, Enzo. Uh... All Frank has done tonight is idle away at the piano. I know, Bart. I asked you both over here, hoping that we could cheer him up. No, this is no fun at all. Golly, I'd like to get to the bottom of this business. Bart. Hmm? I've been thinking, maybe we can help. Suppose we went over to Professor Stout's office and tried to find out what questions Frank missed on the examination. Tonight? Why not? Mr. Andrews is usually there at this time, isn't he? Well, yes, yes, he is, but... Well, he told us this afternoon there was nothing he could do. Just the same, I'd like to talk to him myself. Will you come with me, Bart? What about Frank? Well, I think just now he'd rather be alone a little while. Besides, we won't be gone very long. What do you say? All right, Enza. I'll do anything to help get Frank in Saturday's game. I guess he isn't in, Enza. Here, I'll try the door. Oh, it isn't locked. Let's go inside and wait for him. All right. Oh, I see he's left the gas light on, so he should be back any minute. I hope he isn't too long. Oh, goodness, what's that? Gosh, I don't know. Oh, oh yes, yes, of course, it's the telephone. Oh. I remember during summer vacation, they were installed in the office of all the faculty. Nothing but the best and most modern for May at Yale. Oh, shouldn't we do something about it? We can't just let it ring. I'll answer it. Let's see. This is the receiver. Yes? What is it? Well done, Andrews. Everything went off without a hitch, didn't it? You can cancel that debt right now. Oh, wait a minute. This isn't... Well, uh... what's this? Oh, Mr. Andrews. Someone's on the telephone, Mr. Andrews. I, I think they want you. We were just waiting here for here, you. Here, give me that. Andrews speaking. Yes? 
Well, I'm glad you're satisfied. I will. Goodbye. Oh, uh, excuse me for being so abrupt. The, the telephone excites me. I can't get used to it. Well, that's all right, sir. It wasn't important. Just one of those book salesmen. They're always bothering me. Mr. Andrews, we came to see you, Mr. Hodge and I, about Frank Merriwell's examination. Well, I'm afraid, miss, there's little I can do until Professor Stout returns. Well, do you think there's a chance he'll get here before the game? Well, I couldn't say, but I don't think Merriwell should count on it. No, we're all counting on it, Mr. Andrews. We have no one to replace Frank at fullback. I thought Bob Marlin was playing in Merriwell's place. Oh, Bob's a wonderful end, but he's no fullback. He can't punt at all. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So you see, it means Yale will lose the opening game just because of a few questions Frank missed in American history. Well, if he hadn't bungled that one about the Mayflower Pact, he might have pulled through. But Professor Stout couldn't conceive of anyone missing that. The Mayflower Pact? Well, Frank uh, knew... Bart, all... I, I think we'd better go. Uh, we don't want to take any more of Mr. Andrews' valuable time. <laughs> Ten signers of the Mayflower Pact. Why, that's ridiculous, Bart. I can name all of them. Of course you can, Frank. I heard you do it on the train. Well, just the same. That's what Andrew said. He practically said you'd have passed it if you hadn't bungled that one question. Bart, this thing doesn't add up. How do you mean? Well, when I asked Andrew about my paper, remember when we went to see him with the coach? He claimed to know nothing about it. You're right, Frank. You're right. Yes, and, and when Bart and I asked him, he told us you missed that easy question. It sounds odd, all right. What do you make of it, Frank? I'm beginning to think somebody switched papers on me substituted a failing paper for my passing oh, one. but, Frank, would that be possible? Well, a lot of impossible things have been happening around here lately. But how could anyone forge a paper and hand it in under your name? That's what I've got to find out before Saturday's game. Frank, do you actually believe anyone would go to such lengths to keep you out of Trinity's game? Yes, I do. Remember the man on your porch the day we got back from Blue Lake? You mean the man who threatened me? Oh, could he be behind all this? He might be. I wish now I hadn't let him off so easily. But, Frank... Where would someone like that get a sample of your handwriting in order to forge a paper? Oh, that wouldn't be hard. I've signed hundreds of autograph books. For instance, Bart, remember the man in Maury's, the one who asked me to sign an autograph for his little boy? Oh, sure. The man with the encyclopedia. Wait. Wait a minute. I just got an idea. There was a man on the train by the name of Sloan. George Sloan. Said he was a book salesman. Later that same day, a strange man offers me an encyclopedia to write my autograph. Then tonight, there was that business you just told me about in Andrew's office. You mean the book salesman who called Andrew's on the phone? Of course, there must be some connection. Bart, try to remember exactly what that man said on the telephone. Oh, let's see. It was something about, uh, everything went without a hitch. And then something about, uh, Andrew's could cancel a debt. And that's about all. And Andrew seemed upset when he came in and saw you talking? Yes, he grabbed the receiver right out of my hand. Frank, you don't think Andrew's is mixed up in this, do you? Well, they'd have to have someone on the inside to switch the papers. But wait, let's not go so fast. Well, what can we do, Frank? Well, it's pretty late, Ensa. You'd better stay here at the house. All right. But Bart and I are going out to find Mr. George Sloan tonight. No, gentlemen, I don't believe we have a guest by the name of George Sloan. You uh, might try one of the other hotels. Thank you, we will. George Sloan? I uh, know, sir. I'm sorry. Uh, thanks. We'll try another place. Why, you're Frank Merriwell, aren't you? That's right. And you say you're looking for a Mr. Sloan? Yes. Mm, yes, I think we have someone by that name. Let me see. Hey, maybe this is our man, Frank. I hope so. Oh, yes, here it is. George Sloan in room 14. 
He's a book salesman. That's it. Thank you very much. What are we going to say to him, Frank? We haven't any tangible evidence yet. No, but I'm positive he's our man. Of course, we can't make any formal charges until Professor Stout gets back. But there are a couple of points I want cleared up. Well, here's the top of the stairs. Which is his room? There it is. Number 14. Should we go right in? No. No, we'll not first. As far as Sloan knows, we don't suspect a thing. He's not there. The room is dark. See the transom? Well, let's try the door. No. No, it's locked. Well, I guess it's no use. We might as well go. No, no, wait. There might be something in that room that can help us. Well, we can't break the door down, can we? We don't have to. I suppose it's not exactly legal, but how about that transom? Of course. Come on. I'll boost you over and you can unlock the door. Here, step on my head. Right. Okay, let's go. There you are. Can you make it, Frank? I can just about squeeze Screw. Come on in, Bright. It's pretty dark in here, Frank. You think we should risk a light? Oh, why not? Here's a match. I'll see where the gas jet is. Oh, there it is, on this wall. Good. There. That's better. Well, what are we looking for, Frank? I'm not sure, but we'll start here at the desk. Hey... Does this book look familiar, Bart? Yeah, it's an encyclopedia, but I don't see... He isn't that the... That's right, Bart. It's the same book that autograph hunter and Maury's wanted me to sign. Look here. Inside the flyleaf. My name and the message I wrote. That means it was Sloan who sent that man for your autograph. Naturally. Why, Frank? I think it's pretty obvious. But we'd better not stand here talking. We'll turn out the light, lock the door, and get out of here. I don't want Sloan to know we've been here yet. But what about the book? We'll take it along. He'll miss it, of course, but he won't know where it's gone. Come on. Oh, clerk, uh, Mr. Sloan wasn't in his room. I know, Mr. Merriwell. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't mention our visit. We wanted to uh, surprise Mr. Sloan. But, Mr. Merriwell, I'm afraid I've already told him. You did? Well, Mr. Sloan came in while you were upstairs. I told him you were looking for him. What did he do? Well, it, it seems rather odd. He looked surprised and... Well, I guess he was a little worried. Then he went right out again. Oh, fine. That means we must work fast. Mark. Where are we going? To get Andrews. And before Sloan does. Oh, I hope he's still here, Frank. You try it again. He's in. I can see the light under the door. Yes? Who is it? Frank Merriwell, Mr. Andrews. I want to talk to you. Just a minute. Hello, Andrews. It's rather late for a social call, boys. This isn't a social call, Andrews. We want to talk to you about a certain George Sloan. I don't know what you mean. And I'm sure it can wait until morning. I'm afraid not, Andrews. We want a confession from you. Confession? I don't know what you're talking about. You received a telephone call from George Sloan. And we have evidence to prove you're mixed up in a plot to keep me out of the Trinity game. Now, would you rather talk to us or to the police? The police? Oh, just a minute. I didn't do anything criminal. I just... You just what, Andrews? Come on, talk fast. Very well, then. I'll tell you. It's been preying on my mind long enough. I owed a gambling debt to George Sloan. He wanted access to those history exam papers. I had to arrange to let him see them before Professor Stout corrected them. I thought so. Bart, go get the coach. Okay. We're going to have Mr. Andrews tell his story to the dean. Okay. 
Well, gentlemen, from Mr. Andrews' story and the other evidence that we have at hand, it's fairly obvious that Mr. Merriwell has been the victim of a plot. Then he's clear, sir, he can play on the game? Well, I'm afraid it isn't as simple as that. Mr. Andrews was just an accomplice. Now, actually, he did nothing to the examination paper. But, Dean Clark, I told you what happened. This book proves Sloan wanted my handwriting so that he could forge a failing exam paper. Professor Stout was sent out of town by a ruse so that I can't have a, a new examination. And Andrews here can testify that the papers were tampered with. I know all that, my boy, but there's nothing I can do about it until Professor Stout returns. I've already sent him a wire, and he should be back by Saturday. In time for the game? Well, I don't know. I hope so. I've done all I could. Then, sir, if Professor Stout does get here in time, will I be able to play? That will depend upon the professor. As you know, he's not, uh, well, athletically minded. But perhaps if you could produce George Sloan, well, who knows? Well, it looks to me like we're licked. Even if Stout does get back, how are we going to find Sloan? He skipped out of his hotel. Yes, Coach. I guess there's a small chance of finding him before the game tomorrow. All we can do is hope for the best. Well, Frank, the third quarter's just about over. Doesn't look so good, does it? They're only leading two to nothing, Coach. If Bart could just get loose for one good no, run... No, they've got him pretty well bottled up. Oh, I wish you could get in there, Frank. I know, I wish I... Coach. What's wrong, Frank? What do you see? Coach, this is important. Is it all right if I leave the bench for a little while? Well, sure, go ahead. You can't help much here, anyhow. I'll be back as soon as I can. I, I saw you wait for me to come down here, Frank. What is it? I just saw Sloan in the stands. He's watching the game. Might have known he would with all that money at stake. Oh, but what good can that do now? It might do a lot of good, Enza. Part of it depends on you. On me? Yes. Now, here's what I want you to do. Well, Sloan, it looks like we're in. They can't do a thing without Merriwell. Yes, but that was a bad moment last night when I found Merriwell searching my room. What do we care as long as Yale loses? Say, look. Isn't that Merriwell's girl coming this way? Yeah, that's right. She might recognize you. Keep your head down, Cope. Pardon me, are you Mr. Sloan? Uh, that's right. Uh, what can I do for you? I'm in the Burridge. An acquaintance of mine, uh, Mr. Andrews, asked me to give you a message. Andrews, huh? What is it? He wants to see you. He said it was something about the game. Where is he? Down at the entrance of the Yale dressing room. He's waiting for you there. I see. About the game, you said. Mm -hmm. All right. I suppose I'd better talk to him. Can I win a game now, Coach? In another minute or two, Pinky. The fourth quarter just started. Where did Frank Merriwell go? I saw him leaving the field. Oh, I don't know. He didn't say. Hey, watch those end runs. Oh, look at that fullback. Hey, Coach, look. Here comes the dean with Professor Stout. Where? Oh, they're coming over here. Uh, Coach, here's Professor Stout. You said you wanted to see him the instant he arrived. Uh, good day, gentlemen. I'm sorry to interrupt your baseball match. Uh, football, Professor Stout. This is the football coach. Uh, football, uh, yes, yes. Yes, to be sure. Uh, but what is all this nonsense about Merriwell's examination? I explained the circumstances to Professor Stout, Coach, but there seems to be little that he can do. But you know what a good student the boy is, Professor. Yes, to be sure. But there's nothing I can do unless I have some proof that the wrong examination paper fell into my hands. Well, there's not much use worrying about it now. The game is practically lost anyhow. Well, that reminds me. Pinky. Yes, Coach? Get in there for a diamond. Yes, sir. Well, I guess it didn't work. He should have been down here by now. Wait. Here he is. Hello, Sloan. Why, looking for someone? Very well. What are you doing here? Looking for you, Sloan. I want you to make a little confession. Stand back, Meriwell. 
Don't come any closer. Oh, so you've got a gun. Well, maybe you aren't expecting a tackle. All right, Sloan, now you're going to talk. Don't, don't, don't you break my arm. Talk, Sloan, talk. All right, all right, I'll talk, only don't break my arm. And you'll do your talking right over there at the bench. Come on. And so, Mr. Sloan, you admit forging his boy's paper and substituting it in examination. Yes, I did it. There you are, Professor. Now can Marywell play? Well, this is all highly irregular. Get your helmet on, Frank. Yes, sir. Uh, but first, first, he must pass the examination, you know. Oh, no, there's no time for that. The game's nearly over. Nevertheless, I must give an oral examination. It's the only proper way to handle it. I'm ready, sir. Oh, hurry. Charles, go in for Mason. Call time out. Never mind the penalty. I shall ask you three questions, Marywell. Shoot, sir. Shoot? I mean, go ahead, Professor. Uh, uh, one... Who was Jonathan Edwards? A famous Yale alumnus, theologian and lecturer, born 1703, died 1758. Hmm. Two, what date did Massachusetts enter the Union? 1788, one of the 13 original colonies. Three, what does the term fundamental orders have to do with the history of New England? The first written constitution adopted by self-governing people, date 1639. Well, does he pass, Professor? Can he play? Yes, yes, I'm quite satisfied. Get in there, Mr. Merriwell, and make a home run for Yale. Oh, you heard him, Frank. Time! Substitution! <laughs> There we go. What, what is happening, Coach? Is Merriwell winning? Oh, he hasn't started yet. They're oh. lining up now. Just time for one play. Oh, uh, make it good, Frank. There goes the ball. Uh, where? Oh, Merriwell's got it. He's trying left hand. Run, Frank, run! Oh, look, Professor, he's clear. clear. Nice block fight. You see that man's about? Oh, look out for the safety man, Frankie. He's going to make it. He's going to make it. He made it. Touchdown. Yale wins. Well, but what happened? The game's over, and Yale wins! Oh, Frank, that was the most wonderful game I ever saw in my life. I've never been so excited. Oh, and you should have seen Professor Stout jumping up and down there on the sidelines. The professor showed his true colors today, all right, Inter. He's a true blue Yale man. And so are you, Frank. It's lucky you tumbled to that gambler's scheme in time or we'd have lost. You know, Yale really scored two victories today. Two? Yes. We won from Trinity, and we made a football fan of Professor Stout, even though he still thinks it was a baseball game. Exciting adventure with Frank Merriwell, beloved hero of American fiction, brought to you in a new series of dramatic stories by the National Broadcasting Company. Stand by until next week at the same time when Frank Merriwell returns in another of his celebrated exploits. Frank Merriwell is played by Lawson Zerby. Today's script was by Ruth and Gilbert Braun and William Welch. Music was by John Winters, and the program was produced and directed by Joe Mansfield. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. Yale star player and friends, turn it around just in time for the big game to turn out a win for Yale. 
after some sports skullduggery. And the tip-off came from that newfangled gadget, the telephone. That was The Adventures of Frank Merriwell with The Riddle of the Wrong Answer from October 5, 1946. How could Frank possibly fail his history exam? That was the debut of the half-hour series. And we're going to stay in college with the Halls of Ivy next here on Skywave Audio Theater. The Ohio State Award-winning Halls of Ivy may have been a comedy, but it took on some of the tough issues of the early 1950s. Deep in the Cold War, you'll find Professor Hall riffing on anxieties about Soviet expansion. Lou Merrill, a.k.a. Thomas Highland of Crime Classics, is going to turn up as a new professor at Ivy. And some of those anxieties may be calmed with Schlitz, the sponsor for the two seasons of The Halls of Ivy. This story comes from October 3rd, 1951. It's called Adoption. Transcribed. Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous, presents The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Good evening, this is Ronald Coleman. And Benita Coleman. On behalf of our sponsors, the brewers of Schlitz Beer, we welcome you back to another school year on the campus of Ivy College. And now, the Halls of Ivy. Welcome again to Ivy, Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA, which is still in the throes of settling down to the academic year. The professors are still scanning new faces for signs of concealed intelligence. The football coaches and the co-eds are estimating the approximate number of attempted passes in the coming season, and the Board of Governors is rechecking its list of wealthy alumni, object sentimental extortion. As Ivy's president, Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, says to his wife, the former Victoria Cromwell of the London stage, at this time of the year, I feel like the director of the Mint, taking in raw metal to be turned out as coin of the realm, stamped to a certain pattern, but put to a million various uses. At least that's what he intends to say as soon as she gets off the telephone. Well, I'd simply love to, Eddie. But let's wait till school settles down a bit, shall we? Oh, no, darling, I'm sure he won't mind. I know a few days in New York with you will be wonderful fun. Well, come over for lunch Friday. We'll talk about it. Yes. Bye, Eddie. Hello, Toddy, dear. I was wondering when you... uh, What's the matter? Oh, nothing, really. I was simply wondering how I could pry into your affairs long enough to learn who Eddie is. (laughs) Eddie? Eddie. Whom you are sure I won't mind if you spend a few days in New York with. Uh, if you'll pardon the atrocious sentence structure. <laughs> the Eddie I was just talking to. Edwina Carrington, Professor Carrington's wife, Eddie Carrington. Oh, oh, oh. Hmm. 
Yeah, yes, I, I thought it must be she. Uh, <laughs> you thought nothing of the kind, you handsome green-eyed monster, you. <laughs> you were teetering, my love, on the brink of jealousy. I was not teetering. The word indicates a certain lack of control. No, I was gathering myself for a plunge right into it. <laughs> well, how'd the morning go, darling? Oh, it passed in the familiar welter of unnecessary confusion. The usual autumnal kaleidoscope. Kaleidoscope? What, colorful, you mean? No, I mean the, um, the scope of every operation seems to collide with all the others. Oh, well, you're never happier than when your telephone's ringing, your door is flying open, your desk is shoulder high with it. Well, you better answer it, yes. Probably a crisis of some kind. As the comedian said to Clyde Beatty, gird up your lions, boy. <laughs> I hope it's something really devastating and crucial. I'm tired of puny, picky, you and little problems. Not worthy of me. Hello? Yes, this is Dr. Hall. Oh, yes, Professor. Oh, I see. Well, don't take it too much to heart, Professor. This is just the warm-up period, you know. We... Oh, yes, by all means, please do. I'll be here. Got a nice, juicy one, Doctor. Well, I... I don't quite know. That was Professor Valdeck, new this year. What particular brand of information does he strive to impart to the eager, it says here, student? Uh, genetics. Hmm? Genetics. Oh, well, ask a silly question, get a silly answer. I <laughs> What is Professor Valdex's trouble? Oh, let's wait and hear it from him. He's coming right over now. Uh, now, what were we talking about? About how glad you were to be back. Well, I am glad to be back, in spite of such a splendid summer. And we saw a lot of country, didn't we? It's positively frightening. How on earth can a country as large as the United States be run by a little town way over on the edge of it? And why isn't the capital in the middle someplace? Incidentally, where is the middle? Geographically, in central Kansas. Yeah, but Washington, D.C. must be two or three thousand miles away from it. It, it doesn't seem reasonable. Oh, the explanation is simple, my darling. Uh, the residents of Washington, D.C. do not vote. Politicians feel much more comfortable having offices in a community where the citizens have no ballot. <laughs> it's restful. <laughs> but, um... Uh, how, how would you like to do more American exploring next summer? More? You mean we didn't see all of it? <laughs> we, we didn't see a tenth of it. Personally, I'd like to continue the tour. I was tremendously interested in talking to people along the way. Interested and, I must admit, a little disturbed. Well, then why do it again if it disturbs you? Oh, let's call it an urge for diagnosis. I want to see in what degree the brassy courage, the inherent confidence, the... The, the, the spit-in-your-eye independence of our hickory-shirted ancestors has disappeared. Oh, think it has disappeared? Oh, not necessarily, but, but it's symptomatic when a free-born American citizen fears to sign a test copy of the Constitution of the United States for fear that it might be used against him. Oh, dear, that old hammer and sickle. So symbolic, making hay with a sickle while they knock down the barn with a hammer. Mm -hmm. yeah, we, we should face our collective fears. It's too bad we can't be psychoanalyzed on a national scale. Mm. Can't get a big enough couch, for one thing. Just <laughs> <laughs> uh, look at us. Leading the world industrially. Possessing unlimited resources in men, material, ingenuity and inventiveness. Wealthy beyond measure. 
Mighty in everything but self-confidence. Looking tremulously over our shoulders at a paranoiac nation. Which is so internally insecure that it requires two secret policemen for every citizen. Which maintains slave labor of so many millions that it dare not turn its back on them. Or even admit their existence. Which forbids contact of its people with free countries for fear of their enlightenment and desertion. How on earth can we, a nation of gifted poker players, be bluffed so long with such an obviously busted flush? <laughs> That's what I want to... Well, now, before we answer the door, dear, now, what's a busted flush? <laughs> well, as, as, as a totalitarian example, four long-handled spades and a heavy club. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. But what if they do start a war? Well, then, then we'll fight, my dear, but not from under our beds. And I think this must be Professor Valdeck. Excuse me. Ah, Professor Valdeck. Dr. Hall? Come in, come in. Good of you to see me. I'm delighted to see you. Victoria, this is Professor Valdeck. Professor, my wife. Hello, Professor. Do sit down. It is a great pleasure, Mrs. Hall. Several people have had the temerity to try to describe you to me. They should go back to the school of speech and brush up on eloquence. Well, well, thank you. That's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you seem to be fairly well qualified yourself, Professor. <laughs> uh, but what is it that has you so disturbed? An incident which occurred in my class today. In the middle of my lecture, a student became greatly upset, very emotional, left his books and notes and went out. I cannot think what I might have said to offend him. It was a lecture which I've given many times, and never have I had such a reaction. Well, maybe it wasn't emotional at all. Four jelly donuts for breakfast can get pretty disturbing. <laughs> no, madame. Of the emotional reaction, I am sure. The boy was quite, uh, distrait. Well, who was the student, Professor? Did you check? Immediately after class. He is Bradford Brooks Bradford the Cook. Oh, I know him. He's a nice boy, a little over-mannered, if such a thing is possible, but nice. Pioneer Chicago family. Well, why didn't you get in touch with young Bradford and ask him what was wrong, Professor? I tried. I could not reach him. Oh. At the fraternity house, they said he was packing his trunk, was leaving, did not wish to see anyone. Well, he must have been upset. He never seemed that flighty to me. Very solid scene design and the dramatic productions. Professor... What was your lecture about? On the Mendelian laws, inheritance of dominant and recessive characteristics, quite prosaic and certainly not clinical enough to disturb the most sensitive. Seems very strange. Uh, why not let me locate Bradford, if I can, and, and see what touched off the explosion? I'm sure you're not at fault. Well, thank you. If you can substantiate that, I shall feel a great deal better. Well, don't you worry about it. My husband has a knack for straightening these things out. Oh, please, darling, not a knack. Hmm? Well, that's to class my gift for conciliation with that of, of, of carving ships in bottles or, or dancing the samba with a full glass of water on top of my head. <laughs> Knack, indeed. <laughs> it's a rare talent, highly developed. Yeah, you ever see a man take so many bows before the curtain went up? <laughs> uh, do, do you know what my father used to say, Professor? Uh, he used to say, Bill... Uh, my name is William. Yes, I know. Uh, Bill, he'd say, a man must neither be praised nor censured for any endowments he may or may not possess. For these, he is not responsible. Honor or disparage him, rather, for his attainments. For these, he may claim the credit or must admit the lack. How true. 
You know, dear, I'm sure your father was a very wise man, but I sometimes suspect that the remarks you credit him with are just the things he would have said if you hadn't thought of them first. <laughs> In this case, I, uh, I, I admit that possibility. Uh, uh, Vicky, uh, please see if you can get Bradford on the phone, will you? That invigorating crispness in the air, the silent white clouds in the clean blue sky, the beauty of nature in its thousands of shades of flame color, hayrack rides, long walks in the woods, the wonderful scent of burning leaves. And football game. Oh, yes, football game. <laughs> I love football. Uh, but you know, at Ivy Home Games, I have to watch the last few minutes of play standing on tiptoes at the nearest exit, ready to dash for the parking lot. But I don't mind. You see, I, uh, I settled here in Ivy after I got out of school, married, bought a home, and every year on football weekends, Martha and my old classmates and friends come back. It's uh, gotten to be a tradition, our open house after the game. And that's why I stand at the exit to see the last of the football game. I have to hurry home to see that everything's ready for our friends. Cold cuts, plenty of dark rye bread, pickles, cheese, potato chips, and naturally Schlitz beer. Uh, incidentally, last week we had an especially big crowd, and Professor Wilson, my neighbor, uh, loaned me his children's plastic wading pool. We filled it with ice and Schlitz bottles, and the open house was a swell success. But that was expected, good friends, good food, and the mighty good taste of Schlitz beer. You know, a glass of beer just naturally tastes good on special occasions like our open houses, but I discovered that whenever a beer would taste good, Schlitz beer tastes best. Of course, that's just my opinion. Well, your opinion and the opinion of millions of other people like you, too. So many people like the taste of Schlitz beer. It's first in sales in the USA. Why don't you, too, make a point of always enjoying the most popular beer in history? Next time, every time, ask for Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous. <laughs> Return to the halls of Ivy, we find President and Mrs. Hall awaiting the arrival of Bradford Brooks Bradford, the student who left Professor Valdek's genetics class in an unexplained flurry of emotion. Uh, you say you've met young Bradford, Victoria? Mm, he's a nice boy, a little supercilious in a well-mannered way. Crew cut, meticulously dressed. Hey. By the way, why crew? I beg your pardon, darling? Crew cut. Why is it called crew cut? <laughs> I presume because a college rowing team started using short haircuts to cut down wind resistance. <laughs> and keep their forelocks from obstructing their view of the coxswain. <laughs> Flinging back an errant cowlick 40 strokes from the finish line would certainly be no help to the rhythm. <laughs> Unless, of course, the entire crew tossed their heads in unison. <laughs> but then it might look to the spectators like a mass tantrum. <laughs> Thank you. One reason I love you, dear, is that you always have an answer. Well, I 
I try. If I lack authentic information, I find simple logic quite helpful. Mm. Incidentally, this summer I found another reason why I love you. Did you? It suddenly occurred to me what a wonderful instinct you have for companionship. Mm. You mean I don't yakety-yak all the time? <laughs> That's part of it. I remember that for 107 miles across the state of Utah, you uttered just 13 words. You said, Did you know, dear, that we've been out of gas for some time? <laughs> until we were going downhill with a filling station at the bottom. <laughs> yes. uh -huh. you, you, you were wonderful, wonderful. You're one of those rare women who respect a man's occasional need for solitude. I don't think women, constitutionally, are equipped to cope with it. Oh, yes, they are. But personally, I love solitude, particularly if I'm with you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> what I mean is that men, like, like little boys, must run away from home now and then. It's a compulsion. Oh, they may just go out and pitch a few golf balls, whip some stream in which no trout has been caught in local memory, or just lock the door and string paper clips together. But most women don't understand this. But then I can't recall that history has ever recorded the name of a female hermit. <laughs> no, Catherine of Russia and Cleopatra and Helen of Troy were, were quite social, as I remember it. <laughs> but so, as you say... Ah, that's probably Bradford. Uh, excuse me, darling. Ah, oh, Mr. Wellman, please come in. Can't stay but a moment, Dr. Hall. Only a moment. I just want to say good afternoon, Mrs. Hall, that I just heard about Bradford Bradford, and I want you to... Good afternoon, know. Mr. Wellman. Afternoon, Mrs. Hall. That Bradford Brooks <laughs> Senior is a very dear friend of mine. Comes from a fine Chicago family, ancestors bordered from the Indians and all that. And if this boy is permitted to leave Ivy College and all the money he has so generously donated in the past, I mean his father and his father's father, all Ivy alumni, it must not be permitted. Is that clear, Dr. Hall? Well, I, I must admit to having heard statements which were finer examples of clarity, Mr. Wellman. <laughs> Indeed. I didn't think it would be necessary to diadrogram. <laughs> Drama diagram. <laughs> Look, if this boy is allowed Mr. to... Mr. Wellman. What is it? <laughs> Mrs. Paul... If what you're trying to say is that we must make every effort to find out what has happened and, if possible, keep young Bradford as a student, well, I'm sure Dr. Hall couldn't agree with you more. Of course. Influence and connections are not necessary to enlist my help, Mr. Wellman. This is my job. Yeah, he likes it, too. He flushes trouble out of the bushes like a bird dog. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't misunderstand me. I was merely trying to... Did you know, Mr. Wellman, that I am one of your admirers? Well, don't just stare at him, Mr. Wellman. It was a compliment. <laughs> I, I know, but uh, what did I... Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't aware that uh, uh, this comes as a complete... What was that you said, Doctor? <laughs> I said I was one of your admirers. That's what I thought you said. <laughs> as chairman of the Board of Governors, Mr. Wellman, your primary function is to keep this institution in a state of solvency. Our solid financial status at present is largely a tribute to the grim and resolute manner in which you pursue and capture the wily contributor. I admire any man who has a task to perform and acquits himself well. Oh, my goodness. I... <laughs> well, uh, uh, thank you. But, uh... So, 
the fiscal responsibility being yours and the educational responsibility being mine, I suggest that we each stay within our respective preserves. I'll handle the younger Bradford. You go and extract a stadium from the elders. In other words, Dr. Hall, I have to mind my own business. Oh, no, I... Uh, 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 yes. Very well. I guess I sort of admire you too, Dr. Hall. Any employee, and don't ever forget you are one, <laughs> Any employee who has the, has the, uh, the, uh... Visceral integrity? I was thinking of a shorter word. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yes, the, the visceral integrity to tell the chairman of the board to mind his own business is, uh... Well, uh, uh, let me know what happens. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, stadium of yours isn't a bad idea. Uh, good day, Mr. Paul. Good day. Well, now that he's had a pat on the head, he'll go and work harder than ever for donations. Sort of wagging his toil, as it were. You know? Oh, no, no. Wagging yeah. his toil. Yes. Ricky, my I suppose that's Clarence back for another kind word. Oh, well, Clarence is much too astute to expect it twice in one day, from me at least. Well, in that case, I'll let Mr. Bradford in. Hello, Brad. Come in, please. Well, thanks, Mrs. Hall. Dr. Hall here? Yes, I'm expecting you. Brad, uh, I don't think you've ever met Dr. Hall. Ah, welcome to the, uh, to the powerhouse, Bradford. <clears throat> Thank you, sir. Yeah, well, sit down. Now, can I get you gentlemen something cold and wet or something hot and fragrant? What? Not for me, thank you, Mrs. Hall. And, and, and don't leave on my account. Oh, yes, it might help to have another opinion. Although what there is to have an opinion about, I'm sure I don't know. <clears throat> Professor Valdeck seems to think he said something either disturbing or offensive to you in his class. Oh, it wasn't his fault, sir. I'm sure it was just a routine lecture, but... Well, it gave me a bad shock. In what way? Well, I suddenly discovered I'm a phony. I've been masquerading all my life. Bradford Brooks Bradford III... A lot of malarkey. I don't know who I am. I'm suddenly nameless Joe, the doorstep kid. I'm afraid this is a little beyond my comprehension. Exactly what was it in the lecture which led you to this sudden loss of identity? You know the Mendelian law, Dr. Hall. Yes, a natural law which relates to the inheritance of certain characteristics worked out by Gregor Johann Mendel, the Austrian biologist. Born 1822, died 1884. Yes, but... <laughs> Why, Vicky, how, how did you... Well, how... I looked it up this afternoon. Oh. <laughs> Go on, Brad. Well, I've always been rather proud of my family, Dr. Hall. Being Bradford Brooks Bradford was important to me, and I don't think I'm a snob either. Oh, of course not. There's a certain proper pride in good stock and good breeding if you try to live up to it. Well, that's what I mean, sir. My family were Mayflower stock. Well, I'm glad to meet one of our passengers. My ancestors built the boat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the ride, Mrs. Hall. <laughs> anyway, this morning, that was all shot out from under me. According to Professor Valdeck and Mendel, two parents with clear blue eyes, a recessive characteristic, cannot have a child with brown eyes. Ah, clear blue eyes. Yes, yeah, quite rare. <clears throat> Very few people have clear blue eyes. I know, Dr. Hall, but it happens that both of my parents have them. Now, sir, will you look at my eyes? Brown, aren't they? 
Do you understand what that means? Well, I can see the possibility that you were adopted. Yes, adopted. A, a waif. It's a kind of a poke in the teeth, Doctor, to be somebody all these years. A, a member of a distinguished family, a man with a background and everything, and then suddenly discover that you're a nobody, a foundling. Now I've got to go home and find out just who and what I am. Why? Why? Well, Mrs. Hall, how can you ask why? I've just explained. Excuse me, Bradford. <clears throat> Sir? I think Mrs. Hall's question, brief as it was, is quite pertinent. You know who you are, apparently. You're the adopted son of the Bradfords of Chicago, who took you and cared for you all these years because they wanted you and loved you. Have you ever had the feeling that they were not your real parents? Well, of course not. That's why this is such a shock. Well, then that pretty well shows the affection they have for you, doesn't it? As far as they're concerned, you are Bradford Brooks Bradford. In this case, the biological aspect is a recessive characteristic. It becomes an academic matter entirely. You see, in present-day adoptions, it's the usual custom, I believe, to inform the child of his adoption at the earliest possible time. Why, no, but... Does the fact that it was not the custom at the time of your adoption, does that justify your confronting your foster parents and challenging them, accusing them? Well, I don't know. Now, that's about who you are, Brad. Now, let's take what you are. All right. What am I? Well, the, the answer to that's quite obvious. You're a healthy, good-looking young man with pleasant manners. And, I'm told, a genuine talent for stage design. Do you realize what an opportunity you have to further distinguish the name of Bradford by means of your own ability and character? You, you mean that, really? Well, I can think of no greater satisfaction than to bring a little added glory to the names of the people who have given you so much. Blue eyes or brown eyes, what does the color matter when they are filled with love and pride? You certainly make it seem kind of unimportant that I was adopted. It is unimportant, Brad. Don't be a happy little descendant. Be a big, proud ancestor. <laughs> I, I'd like to say one more thing. Uh, uh, Mrs. Hall and I spent the summer touring America. The great country, Brad, was built by great people, including the Bradfords. You know what made them great? A spirit of freedom and independence and a disregard for binding tradition. Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, Kit Carson, Lewis and Clark, who were their families? Who knows? Who cares? They were individuals with the greatest heritage possible, a heritage of courage and initiative. They made their own names. And in doing so, they made a nation. Oh, it's a little late for you to find a new Oregon Trail, Bradford, or make a fortune in buffalo hides. But the chance you have of making the third Bradford Brooks Bradford a great name in the world is spread right out before you. Are you going to take it? Yes. Yes, sir, I'm going to take it. Thank you. No, no, don't thank me, my boy. Thank those kind and generous people who sent you here, the Bradfords, who invested their good name and faith in what begins to look like a gilt-edged security. I'm glad you think so, sir. I think I'll get back and unpack. I've got to earn some dividends on that security. <laughs> good night. Good night, Good night, Brad. Good night, Brad. Toddy. Yes, Vicky. I'd like to be in Chicago someday when Bradford's parents call him in and tell him he's an adopted child and hear him say, Oh, yes, I've known that for a long time. 
Well, I think that now he's looking forward to that day himself. And I'm glad that with your help, my darling, we managed to change his point of view. There's an old Irish proverb which just about covers the situation. God never shuts one door, but he opens another. The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman, has been presented by Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous. The taste of Schlitz, the taste that so many people like so much, has made Schlitz beer first in sales in the USA. Why don't you, too, enjoy the most popular beer in history? Next time, every time, ask for Schlitz beer. Now, here again are Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Good night, everybody. Good night from all of us and our sponsor, the Brewers of Schlitz Beer. Join us again next week here on Ivy Campus, won't you? Good night. Good night. at this same time at the Halls of Ivy starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Mr. Wellman is played by Herbert Butterfield. Also in our cast were Lou Merrill and Victor Perrin. Tonight's script was written by Ted Rosnack and Don Quinn. Music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. The Halls of Ivy was created by Don Quinn, directed by Nat Wolf, and presented by the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin who invites you to enjoy the Schlitz Playhouse of Stars on television with the brightest names of Hollywood and Broadway. See your newspaper for time and channel. Ken Carpenter speaking. Radio's prominent couples, Ronald and Benita Coleman, playing a married couple, Dr. and Mrs. Todd Hunter Hall, in the Halls of Ivy. That was from October 3rd, 1951. For some reason, the Schlitz Brewing Company thought that a series about college life was a good fit for beer. Imagine that. Producer Don Quinn wanted to come up with a comedy very different from his long-running hit, Fibber McGee and Molly, and I would say that the Halls of Ivy filled the bill. Next, it's Strange Wills here on Skywave Audio Theater. During his Hollywood years, Warren William developed a reputation for portraying unprincipled businessmen, manipulative lawyers, and rubes of various kinds. During the business failures and unemployment of the Great Depression, movie audiences loved to jeer at characters like the ones that William played. He became known as an actor audiences love to hate. Late in his career, he was the voice of probate lawyer John Francis O'Connor 
on radio's Strange Wills. His co-star was one of radio's busiest actors, Lorene Tuttle. And here they are in the Miser's Gold, Strange Wills from October 5th, 1946. Strange Wills. Starring the distinguished Hollywood actor, Warren William. And featuring Lorene Tuttle and Leo Cleary. With Howard Culver and an all-star Hollywood cast. Original music by Del Castillo. Dead men's wills are often strange. We cannot attempt to understand them or try to find the answers. We can but tell the story. This is Warren William bringing you the story of Miser's Gold. But first... Now back to Warren William as John Francis O'Connell in Miser's Gold. Of all the strange, weird characters I've had the pleasure to represent in probate matters, none, I think, ever can measure up to the caliber of old Nick, gold miner extraordinary. I saw him for the first time on a cold March morning when he came up to my office for legal advice. He wore neither hat nor overcoat, and his toes, blue with cold, were sticking out of his broken shoes. <laughs> he was a character. Mr. O'Connell, I'm an old man, sick man, and I want to know what happens to your money when you kick the bucket. Well, Nick, under the law, it goes to your next of kin. If you have a wife and children, then... But I ain't got no wife and kids. Well, then to your blood relatives. That is, of course, if you die without making a will. And if I make a will? Then to whomsoever you name as beneficiaries, Nick. I only got one sister and two brothers. <laughs> well, you've answered your own question. But I don't want them to get my money. I hate them. Well, well, how about some charity? No, 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 I ain't going to give my money to no strangers, neither. Well, Nick, one thing is certain. If you have any money, you can't very well take it with you, can you? No, no, that's right. I can't take it with me. But then... Ain't going to give it to no strangers. And I don't want... Well, I'll think it over, Mr. O'Connell. I'll think it over. Now, how much do I owe you? Owe me? For that small consultation? Nothing, Nick. Uh, no, no, Mr. O'Connell. That ain't how I do my business. I pays for what I get. Now, take this paper bag and keep what's in it. And when I make up my mind, Mr. O'Connell, I'll get in touch with you. Very well, Nick. Good day to you. Bye, Mr. O'Connell. 
Bye. After Nick had left the office, I untied the string around the little paper bag he'd given me. It felt like a bag of sand. <laughs> Maybe old Nick was a beachcomber. I poured the contents out on my desk. Great Caesar, but couldn't be true. But there it was. Yes, Mr. O'Connell? Marie, Marie, has that old character gone? Yes, I'm still fumigating the room. Come in here, Marie. Well, I'll be blessed. Were you asphyxiated, too? Look, look here on this paper. Don't tell me, let me guess. It, well, at least it looks like gold. Right, Marie. A little paper bag full of pure gold dust. That old codger gave it to me. And he looked like a pauper. And smelled worse. But who is he? Why the gold? Well, that's the strange part of it. Would you believe it, Marie, if I told you... Tell me what, Mr. O'Connell? Well, I only know him by the name of Nick. I don't even know where he lives. But as it turned out, that wasn't the last of old Nick. One morning, Marie came running into my office. Look, look Mr. O'Connell, it's a postcard from that character that came in to see you. Huh? We know his last name now. It's Nick Bowler. And we know where he lives, too. Here, give it to me. Dear Mr. O'Connell, I thought over what you told me. I want you to come to my shack tonight. Take Silver Canyon Road to end. Then stop. And you'll see a path that goes up mountain. You'll have to walk the rest of the way. I live on the top of the mountain. You can't miss it. I want to make a will. Nick Bowler. Later that night, Marie and I set out for Nick's shack in the mountains. Who was this Nick Bowler? Had he more gold? <laughs> well, that seemed to be the inevitable conclusion. In any event, the next few hours would be decidedly interesting. Well, Mr. O'Connell, you've already had your bag of gold. Maybe after I transcribe all of your notes tonight, he'll, uh, he'll give me one, too, huh? <laughs> Maybe. But don't have any high hopes, Marie. This Nick is certainly a crackpot. Maybe he won't have a dime. Probably gave you his life savings. But how do you think he ever got the gold dust? Oh, maybe he's a prospector. Well, here we are. This looks like the end of the road. Oh, Nick said uh, when you get here, right here, to stop. <laughs> we couldn't go farther if we wanted to. Now then... Now, let's find that path. <sighs> oh, I never knew there was such a deserted place in the whole world. Well, it's dark, isn't it? Now I'll turn on my flashlight. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's the path. See over there to the right? Yeah, Look. That, that must be it, all right. Well, are you ready for a good climb, Marie? I didn't wear these pedal pushers for nothing. Oh, but this mountain looks awfully high. And steep, too. But let's get going. Oh, say, how about resting for a minute? This is the charge of the light brigade, you know. Phew, I guess maybe you're right. Isn't there any end to this? <laughs> we must be near the top. Can't be much farther. Suppose I give out with a few yoo-hoos. Maybe he'll hear us and, and show us a shortcut. <laughs> Not a bad idea. Try it. Hello? 
Well, that ought to wake the dead. Let's see if he heard us. Oh! Listen to those dogs! Say, wait a minute. This might be serious. They're coming this way. I think this is where we start our return trip. We couldn't make the car before they caught up to us. Yes, but we might be able to get up in this, this tree. All right, quick. Go. Here, give me your foot. Take them both, but get now me then, up there. Now then, up you go. Oh, I, I'm up. Now you hurry. Here, I'll up I come. Get up here. Here I come. Oh, just in time, too. That must be old Nick. Well, here we are, Nick. Up here in this tree. The dogs busted out <laughs> when they heard a woman's voice. See, they don't like women. I'm about as popular as a polecat. Now, just a moment, Nick. I'll jump down. I brought my secretary along to take notes, Nick. Miss Humphrey. Yeah. You know Nick, of course. Uh, well, if one of you gentlemen would please disengage me from this tree. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, give me your hand. Oh, for the days of Sir Walter Raleigh. <laughs> now then, down you come. Ooh. Uh, I'm glad you got here, Mr. O'Connell, both of you. Uh, let me lead the way. It ain't fur from here. Well, Marie, are you ready to begin climbing again? Lead on, Macduff. After this workout, I'll be ready to play ball with the Dodgers. Well, folks, here we are. So, this is where you live, Nick. Yeah. No wonder you haven't any neighbors. Hmm. Only got one. He lives about a mile away. See, I don't live very fancy-like. It's just a one-room shack on the mountaintop. It ought to be nice and breezy. High on a windy hill. <laughs> Sometimes I think the wind like to blow me in the shack right down the mountain. Well, let's go in and get down to brass tacks. After you, Marie. Well, chair, table, and a pile of bags. Yeah, not much furniture, but then... <laughs> I can only sit on one chair at a time. <laughs> Marie... Be a good girl and park yourself on the sandbags. Oh, <laughs> going to be ducky. Now then, Nick, we're ready to go to work. And I never told you much, Mr. O'Connell, the day I come to your office. Well, suppose you tell me now just what you have to will away and who you want to get it. I got a sister. Her name is Sarah. And two brothers, Herman and Otto. Getting this, Marie? Um, heirs at law, next of kin. Sister Sarah, brothers Herman and Otto. Yeah, yeah, that's right. My sister was married. Her husband died. Name is Stevens now. She and my brothers all live in town. Say, before we take inventory, um, I wish you'd pardon me just a minute while I try making this sandbag a little more comfortable. <coughs> Doesn't dent very easily. <laughs> Feels more like concrete than sand. <laughs> That's my ballast, miss. It helps to keep my house from blowing off the mountain. Hold up there. Let me give me a hand there. Thank you. Don't know if you noticed, but there are ten bags, and each one's got a name. Oh, you named the sandbags, too. Yep. Huh? This one's Evelyn, and that one's Gert, and you're sitting on Mert. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry, Mert. And below <laughs> is Hattie, Alice, and Marty. Those are your girls, eh, Nick? Not exactly, Mr. O'Connell, but they're the only women I ever knew. I just like them. I just like them. Yep, each bag's got a name. Here, I'll show you why. Hey, pardon me, miss, I'll... Oh. I'll open up Merck here. Uh, put that paper on the floor, eh, miss? One put it right there. on the floor. Yeah. That's it. Now, what's coming out? Look. <gasps> Gold! It's yellow! It's... 
Oh, no, no, I'm seeing things. No, no, it, it's gold, all right. Every last bag is filled with gold. Yeah, look at her run. Later, when I recovered my composure and Marie got over her shock, Nick told me his story. Yeah, you want to know how I got my gold? I'll tell you. In my family, I was always a dumb one. My brothers and sisters would laugh at me because I couldn't get no place in school. Oh, well, you certainly had the last laugh, Nick. And when my father died, he left his business to my two brothers, Herman and Otto, his house and money to my sister. And to me, he just gave me a mule, a mule that he used in his business. Her name was Annabella. Well, I took Annabella and went into the mountains. Nobody said goodbye. They was glad to get rid of me. One night, I camped by a mountain stream. And I was downright lonely, hungry, and sick of living. Annabella had wandered off to look for grass, and then... Arabella, what's the matter? Wait, 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 Annabella, I'm coming. Oh, oh, there you are. Now, let's see what your trouble is. Quiet, quiet, will you? Oh, so you cut your halter rope on a rock, eh? Well, keep your dander down, and I'll have you loose in two shakes. <laughs> Stick pretty tight. Come on, Annabella. We'll have to pull together now. Come on. <laughs> uh, uh, had to pull half the mountain off to get you loose. Now, be a good girl and bed yourself down. Bed yourself down. Annabella. Annabella. Look. Look. Where the stone came out. It's, it's gold. Gold, Annabella. We've hit pay dirt. You see, sand full of pure gold. Part two of Strange Wills, written by Ken Crapine and directed by Robert Webster Light, will follow in just a moment. But first, a word from your announcer. Now back to the strange Wills story, Miser's Gold, with Warren William as John Francis O'Connell. 
And in these bags, Nick, is what you got out of your placer mine? Yeah, Mr. O'Connell, I filled ten bags with gold, I did. And then it ran out. But it was enough. Took me over five years to get. Every night when I came in from the diggings, I'd let the gold dust run through my fingers. And when I filled each bag, I'd give it a name, kind of like, uh, well, kind of like a friend. I wish I had some friends like that, Nick. I'd settle for even one. Marie. Hmm? Well, a girl can wish, can't she? Well, then my mule, Arabella, died. Buried her next to the mine. Got kind of lonesome and figured I'd pay a visit to my kinfolks. Thought maybe the years had softened them up. I was ready to share my gold if they was decent to me. I went down to the city... We haven't anything for tramps. But I ain't a tramp. Sarah, don't you know me? Know you? No. Why? Why, you're Nick. Yes, Sarah. I'm your brother, Nick. Well, what do you want? I thought I'd sort of pay you a visit, Sarah. I'm... I'm rich now. You rich? Oh, you're crazier than ever. Now, wait a minute. Here, take this $5 bill and go away. We don't want you to disgrace our family name. But, Sarah, don't you understand? I'm... I don't want to understand any more than I can see. Take the money and go away now before I change my mind. All right, Sarah. All right, I'll go. But here, uh, take your money. I don't need well... News about my strike spread like wildfire through the town, especially when I paid my bills in gold. My brother Herman finally ran into me one day on the main street. Nick, Nick, you can't imagine how glad we all are to know that you're well and rich. Good to see you. Yep, Herman, I, I done all right. We, we want you to come to dinner tonight. We, we'll all be there to kill the, <laughs> the fatted calf. Dinner? Yeah, but Herman, Sarah told me I... Then you must tell us all about your gold. <laughs> Maybe all of us can share in your good fortune. Hey, Nick? <laughs> After all, we are your blood relatives. Sure, come on over for dinner. About seven, huh, Nick? All right, Herman. I'll see you all tonight. <laughs> got to Herman's house a little before seven. It was getting dark. I walked along the side of the house and passed by an open window. Inside, I could see my two brothers and Sarah, and they was talking. Have you made arrangements with the judge, Otto? Now, Sarah, everything is taken care of. After he leaves here tonight, he'll be picked up as a vagrant. Isn't that right, Herman? Yes. The judge promised to give him a hearing right away. Uh-huh. And see that he's committed to an asylum. Yes. And Otto... As soon as we find out where he lives, we'll just go out there and take possession. Why, of course. Meantime, one of us will get appointed as conservator of his estate. Does that mean anything to you, Sarah? Well, it will, if we can find his gold. We must a lot have a lot of it hidden away somewhere. We'll find out where it is, Nick and we'll go was out... always too dumb to be rich anyway. Just like that mule father willed him. Remember? Oh, that <laughs> mule. <laughs> I come back to the hills, and I ain't never seen him since. Well, Nick, I can't really blame you for not wanting to leave them your fortune. But if you don't, it'll have to go to other people. I know, I know. 
For six months, night and day, I've been trying to figure a way of giving it to them and still making sure they can't spend it. Huh? Ah, but I guess it can't be done. They're bound to get it one way or another. I want you to make my will. <laughs> give it my kin folks. <coughs> Everything. Uh, I'll take care of the rest. <laughs> yeah, I'll take care of the rest. Realizing that Nick was really a very sick man, I lost no time in preparing his will and taking it out to his shack for his signature. As I neared the top of the mountain... Hello, hello, Nick. Hello, Nick, where are you? Oh, go right in the shack, Mr. O'Connell. I'm just fixing things up underneath here. I'll be right up. Fixing things, eh? <laughs> well, this place could stand a little fixing. <laughs> you got my will? Yes, I've got it. Good, then. Let's get it over with. Old Nick must have had a premonition of what was coming because just a few days later, he was found dead in his cabin by his only friend and neighbor on the mountain. His neighbor called me immediately as Nick had instructed him to do. After reporting Nick's death to the proper authorities, I called his sister, Sarah. Yes? Are you Mrs. Uh, Sarah Stevens? Yes. Who is this and what do you want? And this is John Francis O'Connell, attorney at law. You have a brother, a brother named Nick? Yes. What about it? He asked me to call you as soon as I was informed of his death. Death? Nick dead? When? Where? I am informed that he died sometime during the night. A neighbor found his body this morning. Oh, where? In his house. He lived in a little shack on top of the mountain at the end of Silver Canyon Road. Did he turn over anything to you? His, uh, no, his... no, nothing has been turned over. That, of course, will have to be done through legal channels. Well, now, look here. He was our brother, wasn't he? What he had belongs to us. Herman, Otto, and me are his only relatives. Yes, I know. We'll go out immediately and take possession of his property. The end of Silver Canyon Road, you say? I wouldn't advise that for two reasons. First, certain legal steps will have to be taken. The coroner will have to examine the body, and then provision will have to be made. All right, all right, so you've advised us. You've done your duty. But just let someone try and stop us from going. What he's got belongs to us, and Mr. We aim to get it. Well, what a charming female. I could see greed coming right out of the telephone. I wonder why old Nick insisted that you call her as soon as you found out he was dead. The cinch, he didn't want those three vultures to get his gold that quick. No, he should have known there'd be no stopping them once they heard the news. No stopping them's right. I bet they're on the way right now. I wonder, Marie. I wonder if old Nick didn't want them to get there first. What? But why? Well, what did he say the last time you saw him? How did he feel about it the day you went out there to have him sign his will? Well, he didn't say anything. Felt fine as far as I could see. Yes, I remember. He was all smiles. Had a saw in his hand when I met him. <laughs> what was he doing? Trimming the shrubbery? <laughs> <laughs> he might have been trimming his beard, for all I know. <laughs> wait a minute. Marie, wait a minute. What's the matter, Mr. O'Connell? You look sick. I am sick, Marie. Get your hat and coat. Well, well, wait a minute. What's no the matter? No time to talk now. Come on. We've got a trip to make, and every second counts.
Why can't this car go faster? Why can't it... You're already making 72. What do you expect when you're climbing them out? Faster, faster. We've got to go faster. Almost. Almost up to the, the top, Marie. Oh. Don't give up. We've got to make it. We've got to. Look. Look, the shack is still there. It's still there. Oh, thank heaven. Come on, let's run for it. Yeah. I'm right behind you. We'll make it. We'll make it. There goes the shack. We're, we're too late. There's old Nick's answer, just as I feared. You were right. Oh, how horrible, Mr. O'Connell. I can't believe it. Warren William will be back in just a moment to tell you the rest of the story of the probate cause of Miser's Gold. But first, here is a brief message from your announcer. Now again, here is Warren William as John Francis O'Connell. You see, Marie, Nick knew that if I had any inkling of his mad plan, I would have stopped it. But how did he ever manage to have the shack tumble down the mountainside just when his two brothers and sister were in it? His family may have called him the dumb one, but in reality, Nick was shrewd and crafty. Mm -hmm. He knew all about the stress and strain of timbers from his experience working his mine. He knew, too, that Sarah, Herman, and Otto were greedy. Oh, yes. That they would rush out to his shack to find his hoard of gold the minute I let them know old Nick was dead. And if you remember, Nick insisted time and time again that they should be notified immediately. Mm -hmm. We know now that Nick sawed into and weakened the supports that held his shack to the mountainside and waited for his greedy relatives to bring him the revenge he so wanted. Oh. Well, they came all right. They stormed into the shack and began tearing everything apart looking for the gold. Their combined weight brought their own destruction. The supports collapsed, and the shack with its unholy three crashed down the mountainside. Well, it seems to me they were all guilty of one sin or another. Every one of them. And how unnecessary. If Sarah would only have listened, I would have told her that Nick had made a will and left everything to them. There was no necessity for their mad race to destruction. Well, that's about all. You know the rest of it. All but one thing. When did you first realize what old Nick was up to? Oh, it suddenly dawned on me the morning in the office. I remembered then that the day Nick signed his will, I heard the sound of a saw. Oh. And then I recalled how anxious he was to have me notify his relatives as soon as he died. Too late, I saw the plan of his revenge. He really got his revenge, didn't he? Yes, but uh, not entirely. Sarah and Herman died, of course, but uh, Otto survived the fall. And eventually, he will get the entire fortune. You see, Marie, old Nick never learned that two wrongs don't make a right. 
next week I have a thriller for you about savage love and romance in the uncharted wilds of the frigid north. Into this desolate and rugged land north of Hudson's Bay, a beautiful, willful young girl comes to claim her inheritance, an enormous tract of land left to her in the last will of a deceased relative. Here she found a peaceful land of virgin forests and Pierre Baptiste Leblanc, French-Canadian trapper, who molds women to his way of life, or else. But the girl had a mind of her own. That is, until the night the timber wolves serenaded her just outside her cabin door. And then, <laughs> well, I can promise you a story filled with action and suspense. Will the strength and brawn of Pierre Baptiste Leblanc finally win over the determination of this pampered, beautiful woman to resist love in the frozen wastes of the far north? You'll find the answer in the story we call East of Hudson's Bay. This is Warren William, inviting you to listen again next week. Strange Wills is a Telaways feature produced in Hollywood. Any similarity between names used on this broadcast and those of living persons is purely coincidental. So, that's what old Nick was up to. Quite a plan. Not so good for his greedy siblings. At least one of them got out. That was Warren William, Lorene Tuttle and Company in The Miser's Gold, Strange Wills from October 5th, 1946. That was the same night that Frank Merriwell had its debut. One-time co-star Gloria Blondell said that Warren William, who died at age 53, was... An old man, even when he was a young man. Next, it's Nightbeat, here on Skywave Audio Theater. Something terrible is bound to happen. I got faith in human nature. Those are encouraging words for a guy whose livelihood depends on trouble. Randy Stone, who walks the streets of the Windy City at night looking for a story for the Chicago Star, and guess what? Every week he finds one. Listen carefully, and you're going to recognize the voice of Lorene Tuttle, back fresh from strange wills. In fact, maybe twice. Cases of amnesia come up occasionally during Randy's night prowls, but this one's a little different. Frank Lovejoy is Randy Stone, and from October 6, 1950, this is Night Beat. Hi, this is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start in many different ways. This one began with the pursuit of a dream and ended with the death of a nightmare. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. It was one of those quiet, dull nights with the fog rolling in from Lake Michigan and nothing apparently happening anywhere. I cruised the city from the Gold Coast to the river, haunted Ricardo's bar for a while, and later prowled the tougher sections of town. 
Nothing. Nothing at all. By the time I landed at Queenie's Bebop Club over on the south side, I was getting dark circles under my disposition. My train of thought was a string of empties going nowhere. Queenie's place is a tired little bistro with bad food and a hungry floor show. Queenie herself looks like the poor man's Lillian Russell, and sometimes she joins the show to give out with a song. I suppose it's the only way she could get a booking, by owning the joint. Maybe she had a voice once. I can't remember that far back. However, she has a good memory with a tongue hanging square in the middle of it, which makes her good for a story now and then. When she saw me, she ambled over to my table. Hi, Randy. Long time no see. Hello, Queenie. Sit down, rest your bustle. Don't mind if I do. <laughs> How's the newspaper business these days? Tonight's as dull as it ever gets. Queenie. Well, cheer up, dear. Something terrible is bound to happen. I got faith in human nature. <laughs> what about you? Know anything exciting? Not much. I'm getting married. Again? Ah, those others were just a preliminary. This is the main event, huh? How do you like the diamond they gave me? Some rock, huh? Hmm. Looks like a stepping stone to success. Congratulations. Oh, you're welcome. Sam's from Texas, Randy, a regular oil typhoon. No kidding. A typhoon. You weren't swept off your feet, you were blown off. He had a ranch down there that was a dust bowl. No water, no nothing. And then one day... Yeah, well, wait a minute, Queen. Yeah, hmm? wait a minute. What? That man who just walked in over there by the bar. What about him? He's been hurt. That's blood on his forehead. Been in a fight. But he's not bringing any trouble in with him. He looks like he's dazed, like... Maybe he's out on his feet. Ah, those punchy fighters. They get knocked out and they ain't got brains enough to lie down. You know him? No, never seen him. Hey, wait a minute. He's a cop. A plain clothes dick. You sure? I ought to be. He raided my place once. Two, three years ago. What the dickens does he want? He's got nothing on me. Easy, easy. I don't think he's here on business. Something's happened to him. So I'm crying. I think he's been slugged. Either that or he... Hey, where'd he go? In again, out again. Who cares? There was something about him, like he was walking in his sleep. Oh, sit down, Rennie. Now talk to me. I haven't seen you I'm since... I'm sorry, Queenie. I'll be back later. Oh. I went out into the street and looked up and down. The fog swirled about the street lamp on the corner like ghosts on a toot. And like a ghost, my boy had disappeared. He vanished as though he were somebody I'd seen in a dream. Then I heard a car starting up a little way down the block. It was parked at the curb, and I recognized it at once because I'd parked it there myself. It was my car. Hey, come back here. Hey! Well, I'll be a... Hey, taxi, cab! Right here. Follow that car. Don't lose it. Hurry. What's up, Car thief. You got my car. shake it. Cutting down that side street. Not much chance of us attracting any cops around here. Can't you go any faster? Take it easy, mister. We're closing in. We don't lose them first. Not a chance. Yeah, we're getting closer. Crowd him to the curb. Oh, murder. He hit a left. That stopped him. Just clip the fender. Let me out of here before he gets going again. All right, all right. Get out and don't try any... What? You. It was the guy with the blood on his face, the one I'd followed out of Queenie's place. Fellow, she said, was a plain-clothes cop. He sat there, both hands still on the wheel, turned his head slowly to stare at me. What's the big idea? She'll die. I'll go get a cop, mister. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who'll die? Got to get to her before she dies. Who? Can't let her die. 
I'll be a murderer. Who, man? Who is it? I can't remember. You can't remember? I killed her. I killed her. Wait a minute, wait a minute now. Just take it easy. What's the matter? Is he hurt? Yeah, but not from this. I've got to find her. She'll die. She hasn't got a chance. Who? Who'll die? My wife. My wife. I've got to get you. Now, look. I tell you, she's dying. Got to get her out of there. Out of where? I'll get a cop. He is a cop. What? Look, fella, what happened? Can't you remember? What did you do? What was it? Where did it happen? Think. I've been trying hours walking the streets. That cab. Got to use it. Let me use it, please. Okay, get in. Maybe, maybe we drive around. I'll remember. I, I got to. Where to? Head for the nearest place where there's a phone. They say that a clear conscience and a poor memory usually go together, but in this case, it was the other way around. This poor devil was tortured by a guilt he couldn't remember. The very fact that he couldn't seem to sharpen it and make it worse. He stared at me, his fist clenched, burning in a private hell of blind remorse. Well, if he were a cop, it wouldn't be hard to find out who he was. We pulled up in front of a drugstore, and I asked if he didn't remember being a detective. Now, after all, you wouldn't forget being on the force, would you? Detective? Yes. That's right, I am. City police. What detail? Promoted to burglary, 1947. Let me see your badge. Badge? Yeah, inside your coat. What's the number on it? I haven't any badge. You must have an identity card. Let's see your wallet. Wallet? Yeah, get it out, huh? As soon as I have one, yes. Here. All right, empty it. Your pockets, too. Seven bucks, some change, a book of matches, nothing with any address on it. <laughs> An IOU for $300 signed Hollis Rogers. That mean anything to you? Nothing, huh? This all? Did you look in all your pockets? All of them. No card here, nothing. A card that carry an identity card. I, 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 I had one. It's, it's... I think it was a million years ago. Mixed up. Look, I... I've got to get to her, I tell you. I... Well, you can't if you don't know where she is. Stay here. I'll be right back. Stick with him, cabby. Make it snappy, pal. This heck ain't no padded cell. I found a phone booth in the drugstore and called police headquarters. I got through to Sergeant Kalski and told him my problem. Yeah, yeah. Blue eyes, sandy hair, about 28-5-11. Okay, okay. So that could be practically six dozen guys around here. I'm surprised that you... Don't let the nuts sell your bill of goods like that. Oh, now, hold your horses, Kalski. You can check and find out what men were put in the plain clothes and assigned a burglary detail back in 1947, can't you? Waste of my time, Stone. The guy's a psycho just because... He now, wait a minute, Kalski. You were in burglary in 47. I'm yeah. sure if you saw the guy, you'd recognize him. He's got uh, kind of a scar over his left eyebrow. That mean anything to you? Scar? Well, describe it. Well, it's curved about uh, an inch and a half across. Sort of like a new moon. Kenny Day, he yeah. fit the rest of the description? Yeah, he did. What do you mean, did? Why past tense? Because he's past history, Randy. Kenny Day resigned from the force two years ago. Oh. Study of law on the side, as I recall. One of those ambitious punks. You got his address? I can look it up in the file. Uh, will you? I'd sure appreciate it. Okay, but... Look, Stone, one thing. This guy you think might be Day, the guy who says his wife's in danger? Yeah. Kenny Day wasn't married. He didn't have any wife. <laughs> 
Okay, so he resigned in 1948. In two years, a wife could happen to anyone. Kalski gave me Day's address. I called the garage, told him where to pick up my car, and then I went back to the street. The cabbie and the ex-cop were standing beside the cab, the cabbie with his arm around the young fellow's shoulder, his mouth close to his ear. If you don't brood over your troubles, maybe they won't hang. What's keeping him? Hiya, Kenny. Did you find out anything? So your name is Kenny. Kenny Day. Why, of course. Yes, yes. That's my name, Day. Kenneth Day. And you live at 1626 West Adams. Yes, 1626 West Adams. There's where I live. My wife's there. I've got to get her quick. This it, you remember? Yeah. Yeah, th- this is it. This is where I live. All right, come on. Let's go up. What floor are you on? Floor? Which is your mailbox? I don't see your name. A... There, there's my box. This? The name on it isn't yours. It's Joe Tenetti. I don't get it. That is my box. Well, we'll soon find out. It's the second floor back. Come on. We ran up the dimlit stairway and through a hall filled with the warm, moist smell of cooking. And another odor, sharper, heavier, unpleasant. Wait. What is it? Something. Something's burning. Sounds like somebody left something on the stove. No. She's in there. Burning. Easy, easy. Someone's coming. What's the matter with you? Uh, Who are you? Hi. I miss too many. What's the matter? You crazy? You bang on my door? I I live here. Huh? What you say? Anne. I call a cop. Get out of my house. What you want? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now wait a minute. It's burning. Easy, Ken. My wife, you only see burns. So what? You crazy? I'll go my way. No, no, you don't come in. You drunk. Help! Kenny, there must be some mistake. Get out! Get out! Oh, she's in there. I've got to get her out. I tell you, I've got to get her out. I killed my wife. NBC is bringing you Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Here's a note about another NBC chime favorite returning to the air tonight. He's Chester A. Riley, alias William Bendix. Riley returns to the air to live the life of Riley just 30 minutes after Night Beat. Listen for Mom, Babs, Junior, and Digger O'Dell, the friendly undertaker. Tonight you'll hear an amusing episode during which Riley becomes embroiled in a radio broadcast from his own home. Stay tuned here after Nightbeat for Confidentially Yours, Jack Late, and then hear The Life of Riley on most NBC stations. The chimes are your invitation. And now back to Nightbeat and Randy Stone. If I could believe Kenny Day, somewhere in this city his wife was in mortal danger and he was responsible. Dazed and confused, the ex-cop couldn't remember how it happened. All he knew was, if we didn't find her in time, he'd be a murderer. Through the police department, I finally discovered his address. Only when we got there, someone else was living there. We went down to the basement flat and talked to the superintendent. Now, look, Mr. Detonga, he's been living in that second-floor apartment when I become superintendent here over a year ago. What are you trying to pull, anyway? All right, now, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Just 
How long have the Tenettis been living here, anyway? About two years. What are you doing, taking the census? Who lived in their apartment before they did? How do I know I wasn't here? Now, scram. Nice guy. Friendly. I know my wife's up there. Now, wait a minute, Kenny. Now, listen. This is where you lived two years ago. That we know. But have you been living there ever since? Do we know that? Where else? Well, you tell me. Maybe you moved. Isn't it possible? I don't know. It didn't occur to me. Maybe I did. You studied law. You got married. You moved to a better neighborhood, which means you had a fairly good job. Practicing law, maybe. You got your degree, didn't you? I don't know. Well, at least you should be listed in the phone book. We stopped at a cigar store on the corner, went in, put our heads together over the phone book. No lawyers under that name, but there were lots of dates. Kenneth J. Day? Here's one for Kenneth M. Kenneth S. Which one is you? I'm not sure. All right, call him up, all of them, and find out. Yeah. Yes, of course. No dice, huh? No. I kept expecting to hear Anne's voice, and yet all the time I I knew I wouldn't. She is back there at the apartment. I know she is. Why are you so sure? That that smell of burning. What about it? I, I don't know what I'm going back there. Now wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me call my office first. What for? The city directory. I'll have them check that. I called the star and the librarian found a Kenneth A. Day, all right. But the only address given was the Adams Street one we'd already been to. As a detective, the only thing I was running down was my heels. Then as I left the booth, I remembered that IOU in Kenny Day's wallet and that signature, Hollis Rogers. Called the office again and had it checked. Hollis Rogers wasn't even listed. We went back out to the street and I reached for a cigarette and then another thought occurred. Hey, you had some matches. Randy, Randy, the time. It may already be too late. Listen to me. Though. We've got to get back. She's in that house. I Will tell you listen she... to me? Well, maybe it doesn't mean anything. Probably doesn't, but that book of matches you had in your wallet. It looked full, new. Matches? Let's see it. Yes, of course, but I... All right, let's have it. Here. Oh, came from the Cafe Petite. Think you got them there? I, I don't know. It's, it's a little joint on Clark Street. Let's get back in the cab. Maybe you'll remember when you see it. Where to now, mister? Cafe Petite. Well, this place mean anything to you? No. Nothing. Looks like you've blacked out on anything since 1948 except one thing. You married a girl named Ann. Come on, maybe the bartender's seen you before. Just what'll it be? Hi, Mr. Stone. Hello, Mike. Hello. I got a problem. No dough. Oh, that's okay. I'll put you on the cuff for a cuff. No, no, no. It's not that. It's not that. You ever see this gentleman before? Uh, him? <laughs> you kidding? Have you? Oh. You mean you have seen me? Oh, as often as most of my other customers. Hey, what's your gag? It's no gag, Mike. He just doesn't remember. You know where he lives? Ah, how would I know where he lives? Oh, what'll I do, Randy? What'll I do? I... Hey, what is this? What's the matter? I figured you were celebrating the arrival. Huh? Arrival? What arrival? Oh, I, I just thought, well, his wife... What are you uh, talking about? What about his wife? Oh, now, look, maybe it wasn't his wife. I, 
I just didn't know, see, when he was in here yesterday having lunch with that lady, I figured she was his wife because, uh, well, I, I could see she was going to have a baby pretty the soon baby. and... Um, you remember? Where is she, Kenny? Where is she? That apartment. She must be in that apartment. It was burning. Think, Kenny, think. That was two years ago. You don't live there anymore. Well, Andy, I tell you, it's happening now. It's happening now. She's helpless. I tell you. Get a she's... grip on yourself. It's no good going to pieces like that. Well, she was about to have a baby. You remember that, don't you? Yeah, yes, I, I remember now. And I'm afraid, Randy. I'm afraid. Come on, easy, she... easy. Relax. Now you're shaking. Hey, what is with him? There's only one clue left. That I owe you. Who is Hollis Rogers? Try to think, Ken. Hollis Rogers. No. No, I don't remember. Hollis Rogers. Why would you lend him $300? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I never heard of him. Randy. Say, I, I know a guy named Hollis. What? Hollis Rogers? Well, I don't know about the Rogers part. Anyway, the clerk at the Acropolis Hotel calls him Hollis, if that means anything. Acropolis Hotel. He worked there? Yeah, house stick. All right, come on, Kenny. We might as well check it. We've got nothing else to go on. The Acropolis Hotel sported a grimy, worn-out elegance and included a big front window looking out on South State. The lobby was practically deserted except for a bulky character in a wrinkled suit fast asleep in the armchair. Hey, hey. What? Oh. Best clerk going out, huh? Okay, I'll register you, John. No, 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 no. We didn't come here for rooms. Huh? Is there a house detective here named Hollis Rogers? Yeah, there is. Me. Why? Yeah, of course. Hollis Rogers. Huh? Well, Kenny... I'll be a monkey's uncle. I didn't even see you. Why, Kenny Dad? I almost didn't recognize you. You remember him, then? Well, he ought to. We were in the force together, him and me. Prowl car 962. That was us. Hey, let me look at you. Well, well, been a long time, huh, kid? Yes, a long time. Yeah, I just got back from Colorado last month. Hey, how are things going with you? You was about to leave the force, weren't you, just after I resigned? Yeah. Mr. Rogers, you mean you haven't seen Kenny since then? No. I've been working out in Denver. I just got back. Oh, uh, Hollis, this is a friend of mine, Randy Stone. Yeah, pleased to meet you. How are you? Uh, Hollis, what I came here to talk to you about... Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, uh, the dough I owe you. You know, I'd have paid it back a long time ago. Kid, no, no, I... no, no, it isn't that. Did Kenny ever write you telling you where he was living or the name of the firm that he was with? Hmm? No. Why'd you ask him? Hollis, uh, remember the name of the law firm I went with? Heck, no, I don't remember the name. All I remember is that you wrote me once you hoped someday to get your name tacked on to the end of it. Hey, what's the matter, kid? Nothing. Thanks. Thanks, anyway. Ah, what you need is a drink. No, no, no. Ah, help you forget your troubles. I got some... Come on, Kenny, let's go. From the color of Hollis Rogers' nose, I imagine the only thing drink made him forget was when to stop. We went out into the street and got into the cab. Our fund of information had increased measurably. I know now that Kenny Day and his wife were seen having lunch at the Café Petite yesterday, which meant what whatever happened took place between then and early this evening. Listen. What? Oh, you mean the fire engine? It's coming this way. My house, it's burning. Randy, it's burning. Hey, now, steady. She's inside. She's in the house. She'll die. Oh, start up for God's sake. Follow that engine. Wait, Kenny. Now. 
got to. He ain't chasing no fires. Not in my You've got to. I've got to get you. Now get a grip on yourself. You don't know where that engine's going. It could be any place. It's my house, I tell you. Let go Listen to me now. We'll be flagged down by a motorcycle cop inside of ten blocks. You said it. And anyway, it's gone now. So, that's what happened, huh? A fire. Yes. I saw the flames. She was inside. Anne was inside. Burning. Burning. All right, easy, easy now. Couldn't have happened very long ago. Maybe inside the past 24 hours. We can find out where it was. Get us over to fire department headquarters quick. We're practically there. You mean uh, you don't remember where you live? Uh, I just can't. But you know your name. What about the phone book? Oh, we've already gone through all that, Chief. It could be he just moved, or maybe the phone company hasn't installed a phone in his house yet. All he remembers is that it was on fire and that his wife was in danger. Day. Yes, Kenneth A. Day. If there was a fire connected with that name, it would have been reported within the past 30 hours at the outside. I'll check. Be in this box on my desk. Thank you. There'd normally be about 40 fires reported in that time. Day. That's right. You own the property, Mr. Day. I... I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Now, of course, if there were any casualties, the names would be listed. And, uh, day. Yeah, here, here we are. Fire report at 6.10 p.m. Where? 2845 Hemlock Drive. Yes, that's it. My, my wife. Oh, I'm sorry, but the full report hasn't been filed yet from the district station. Fire was only reported a few hours ago. The 2800 block of Hemlock Drive was a neat parade of white stucco bungalows way over on the northwest side. Wasn't hard to find number 2845 because 2845 was merely a gap in the moonlit row of houses, a gap as conspicuous as a missing front tooth and littered with the charred remains of what had once been Kenny Day's home. Find right down to the ground. There's nothing. There's nobody in the street. Nobody in the street. Nobody. Steady, Kenny, steady. There's a light in the house across the way. Let's try to find out what just did happen, huh? And. And she was in there. Kenny, there's no use standing here. She. She phoned me. She wanted to come downtown. She wanted to have one last evening out. Just the two of us. I I said she couldn't. I made her stay home. I didn't want her to come downtown. I was afraid maybe... If I hadn't made her stay, she'd be alive now. I killed her. Kenny. Kenny, it wasn't your fault. You were thinking only of her welfare. Here comes a cop, Randy. Hey, what are you doing? It's all right, officer. That that used to be this man's house. Huh? Oh, why, hello, Mr. Day. I didn't recognize you in the dark. Too bad you're losing your house, especially with the baby coming. Or should I be congratulating you now? What are you, what are you trying to say? Wait a minute, wait a minute. You were here during the fire? Uh, yes. What do you mean? 
Should you be congratulating me? What happened? Tell me. Why, you Say, didn't you go to the hospital? Hospital? What hospital? Good grief, man. When we couldn't find you, we thought you'd come to and headed for the hospital during the excitement of putting out the fire. The fire? Yes. I came home, and it was burning... And I tried to get Anna out. They wouldn't let me. They tried to hold me back. I... Yes, and he'd have burned to death, too, if one of the firemen hadn't given him a tap and knocked him out. We sent him on the lawn across the street. Well, what happened? My wife, they got her out? Why, sure. She headed for the hospital before you even arrived. I hope she made it because she was sure racing the stalk. What hospital? County. Thank you. Kenny, come on. Wake up. Let's see who won that race. <laughs> I don't know how many traffic laws our cabbie broke speeding back to the city, but they would probably have added up to a young fortune in fines. Finally, we skidded to a hall at County Hospital, piled out and invaded the place. The nurse at the desk checked with the maternity ward, and after some endless minutes, she hung up. Well? Mrs. Day gave birth to a boy, eight pounds, both doing fine. Boy. Well, well, well. What do you know? Which one of you is the father? The father? Oh, oh him. Yeah, take a bow, pal. Can I see it? I guess you can. Right this way. He's still in a daze. And you'll be in a daze, too, when you see what my meter reads. You trying to spoil my evening? Ah, don't let it throw you, Doc. Charge it up to education. Travel broadens a guy, you know. Traveling with you does more than that. It flattens him. <laughs> ah, take it easy, Pops. And here. What's this? I think you deserve the cigar. <laughs> Another night about to slip into sunrise and another edition about to go to press. Kenny Day's battle with his conscience is won and the curtain of his subconscious is lifted, as they say in the psychology books. Not that he really had anything to feel guilty about, of course, but conscience works in peculiar ways. To some people, it's as useless as a glass eye at a keyhole. It never keeps them from doing anything. It merely keeps them from enjoying it. <laughs> yes. Copy, boy. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and directed by Warren Lewis. Tonight's story was written by Irvin Ashkenazi with music by Frank Worth. The part of day was played by Ted DeCorsia. Others in tonight's cast were Lorene Tuttle, Bill Tracy, Wilms Herbert, Jack Crucian... Barbara Dupar, and Eddie Fields. Frank Lovejoy may currently be seen in Milton Sperling's production, Three Secrets, released by Warner Brothers. Listen next week at this time and every week as Randy Stone searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. Nightbeat came to you from Hollywood. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Mystery fans will enjoy the Sunday lineup of action-packed adventure shows on NBC. Sunday tune for The Falcon, High Adventure, The Big Guy, Charlie Wilde, and $1,000 reward. 
Five thrill-filled shows packed with intrigue and mystery. Listen Sunday on NBC. Walking the shadowy streets of Chicago, Randy Stone was looking for a story, and he did find one, a memorable one, about amnesia. It was uh, the Kenny Day amnesia case, night beat from October 6, 1950. And it did sound like Lorene Tuttle was in there twice as that hard-boiled barkeep and then a frantic landlady with an accent. But the story in the Chicago Star did have a happy ending. We're going to see who gets the happy ending among the contestants in You Bet Your Life. Next, here on Skywave Audio Theater. There were quiz questions, of course, but the best questions were the ones that Groucho asked the contestants, and the contestants had some colorful backgrounds to share. This time you're going to meet newlyweds, a wrestler, a librarian, a druggist, and a woman who met her husband in a very unexpected place. In the early years of You Bet Your Life, the sponsor was not DeSoto, as it would be so many years later. It was Elgin American, a manufacturer of compacts that were intended to be elegant and more or less permanent, apparently unlike today's. We're going to find out what the secret word is and whether a contestant utters it in this October 5th, 1949 broadcast of You Bet Your Life. Ladies and gentlemen, keep this under your hat. The secret word tonight is chair, C-H-A-I-R. Really? You bet your life! Elgin American, creators of America's most beautiful compact, smartest cigarette cases, finest dresser sets, presents Groucho Marx in the Elgin American show, You Bet Your Life. The comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood. And here's that sterling Elgin American, the one, the only... Groucho! Is he back again? Oh, that's me, Groucho Marx. Thank you. Well, here I am again, happy to report we're starting our third season for the same sponsor, Elgin American Compacts. I've saved my money all summer, and tonight we have $1,000 for one of our couples. George Fannerman, who's first to try for us? Just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected a pair of newlyweds, and here they are, Mr. and Mrs. Roland Carr, meet Groucho Marx. Welcome, youngsters. Do you bet your life? You need to say the secret word at any time we're talking, you'll win $100 in cash. It's a common word, something you'll find around the house. Newlyweds, eh? Uh, how newlywed are you, man? July 31st. I was talking to your husband, uh, <laughs> Roland, does she always answer for you? No, I don't always. <laughs> Gene Carr, don't you ever let him say anything? What'd you get him, in front of a cigar store? <laughs> no. Chatterbox, that's you, Roland. Uh, how old are you? I'm 31. And what's, what's your age, Gene? 30. And where are you from? Jamestown, North Dakota. Roland, what's your home place? Huh? New York City. You live in different towns, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you each go back home, I hope you'll be writing to each other. <laughs> what kind of work do you do, Roland? I work in a bank. You work in a bank, eh? And judging who's been doing the talking, your wife must be the teller. <laughs> Just what do you do in the bank? Well, I'm the operations officer. You operate in the bank? <laughs> Have you got your knife with you? You know, I've always en envied you people who work in banks. You have such a short day. What do you do after 3 o'clock, Roland? 
after the bank is closed when we do our hardest work. I see, yeah. <laughs> is the uh, president of the bank aware of this? <laughs> well, he works after the bank is closed, too. Oh, you're all in cahoots, is <laughs> Well, that's one way for a young bridegroom to put away a lot of money, work nights in a bank. <laughs> Jane, how, do, how did you meet this old uh, banker here? Huh? I used to work in the same bank. After hours or during the regular hours? <laughs> now, since you're newlyweds, we have some appropriate wedding gifts from our sponsor. George? For Jean, Elgin American's beautiful dresser set in jewelry's bronze with a look of gold. And isn't that engraved floral design lovely, Jean? Lovely. Thank you very much. And, Roland, we'd like you to have this slim, sleek, sterling silver cigarette case by Elgin American, handsomely engraved. Very soft. Where did you two uh, kids go on your honeymoon? We went to San Francisco and Lake Tahoe. Mm -hmm. That's an ideal honeymoon. Which one of you went to Frisco, huh? (laughs) Jean, how many of your old boyfriends have you seen since you've been married? I haven't seen a single one. Just the married ones, eh? (laughs) Remember that, Rollin. You see how easy it is to trap your wife? (laughs) Gene, can you honestly say that marriage is as perfect as you'd always dreamed? Well, no. We have a few little problems. Small problems? What are their names, eh? (laughs) Do you plan on having a family, Rollin? Yes, we do. About uh, how many? Oh, about two. Well, you know, being a banker, you know you're going to have to consult the other stockholder <laughs> before you can declare dividends. <laughs> now, Gene, do you, do you think Rollin uh, will make a good father? Yes, he will. Well, why are you so uh, certain? Children like him. He's very gentle and understanding with them. You anything to add to that, Rollin? Eh? No, I can't add anything to that. Just going to stand there and simper, huh? <laughs> Now, as a recent Benedict, what are some of the advantages of married life? Well, it uh, shows a man the right direction in which to go. You mean she's already told you where to go? <laughs> well, you make a charming and a very amiable couple, and I know you'll make wonderful parents. Now, in just one minute, you're going to work together for $1,000. Fenneman, you've had a whole summer to practice what you're going to say. Speak your piece. Young Mrs. Chesser went to her dresser to fix up her hair real pretty. When she got there, the dresser was bare. What? No Elgin American dresser set? No. What a pity. But she rushed right down to her favorite store and bought the smartest dresser set they had. What kind was it? Naturally. Elgin American dresser sets are exquisitely designed. Have jewel-like finish, precision craftsmanship throughout. Have nylon bristles, specially ground mirrors. They're the most fashionable decorator touch you could give a bedroom. They look like a million dollars, but cost as little as $14.95. And if you're extra thrifty, there's Elgin American's companion line of American beauty dresser sets that start at only $7.95. Here's the big, impressive gift to thrill anyone. And don't let your dresser, your guest room, go bare another day. Tomorrow, buy these values you'll value for years. Dresser sets by Elgin American. Now, let's see if you two will get a chance at the $1,000 question. You're going to play, you bet your life. Fenneman, bring them up to date on the rules. Each of our three couples has $20. They bet as much of that 20 as they want on each of four questions. The couple that earns the most money 
gets a chance at the $1,000 question at the end of the program. Our other two couples are in a waiting room off stage, so they don't know what's happening out here. Here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. What question category did you select? We picked songs. Songs from uh, recent Broadway musicals? Yeah. Here's your first question. How much will you bet? $10. All right. This song is from South Pacific. Give me the title of it. Valley High. Valley High is right. And they're on their way, Doctor. They have $30. Remember, you're going for $1,000 tonight. How much of your $30 will you try now? We'll bet 20 Let's see if you can identify this tune from Kiss Me Kate. Play, Jerry. I'm always true to you, darling. Always true to you, darling, in my fashion. They're really on their way. They have $50. That shows he's a groom. Now, here's your third question. How much of the 50 are you going to uh, risk? Uh, we're about 35. Here's another song from South Pacific. What's the title of it? Some Enchanted Some Evening. Some Enchanted Evening. They're really climbing now. They have $85. You have now climbed the Mount McKinley of $85, and there's your last chance to beat the other couple. How much are you going to try? We'll bet uh, $70. $70. Ethel Maiman sang this song, and Annie, get your gun. What's the name of it? There's no business like no show business. No business like show business is right. And they wind up with a grand total of $155. Thanks, and good luck from Elgin American Compact. Stick around now. You might still get the crack at the big question. Groucho, our next couple has been in a waiting room off stage. Perhaps they'll say the secret word. It's chair. We invited some wrestlers and some librarians for the show tonight. And just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected librarian Mary Horan and wrestler Terry McGinnis. And here they come. Folks, meet Groucho Marx. Welcome, folks. We're Elgin American Compacts. And if you say the secret word at any time we're talking, I'll fork over $100 in cash. It's a common word, something you'll find around the house. The wrestler and the librarian, eh? Miss uh, Mary Horan, at which library do you work? At the Central Library, the Los Angeles Public Library. Mm-hmm. And uh, how's business there? Quiet? Uh, okay. Yes, very quiet. A little joke I bet you always use when somebody asks you how's business. Oh, huh? uh, yes. How's business? Very quiet. Very good. I thought maybe things were humming since you do a volume business. <laughs> uh, bone Crusher, Terry McGinnis, huh? Are you married? Uh, yes, sir. How'd you meet your wife? Did you go up to her to dance and say, may I have the next half, Nelson? Grasso, <laughs> I met her in Australia. And, and what uh, were you doing there? I was there wrestling. What, a kangaroo? <laughs> I have wrestled a kangaroo. Have you? <laughs> Isn't it difficult to wrestle a kangaroo? How do you talk business before the match? Huh? <laughs> that, uh, that we don't do, uh, Grasso. With a kangaroo. Huh? <laughs> You can't strike me. I'm sitting down. You know. Besides that, I'm an elderly man and I wear glasses. You know? <laughs> Librarian, you've been very quiet. What do you? Where do you think you are? On the public landing? <laughs> How's business? Very slow. Very slow. <laughs> well, it's changing. It was a little quiet a while ago. <laughs> now, Mary, how did you happen to become a librarian? Did you start out as a bookie? <laughs> Hey, you're a pretty good-looking gal to be working in the library. I never know that girl like that. Are you, are you married there, uh, Mary? No, I'm not. No, no. You're a circulating librarian? Huh? 
What kind of a man are you looking for, Maggie? Uh... Oh, a nice, quiet, companionable sort of person who's well-read and uh, likes good cultural things and good-looking and about six feet. You don't want a man. You want Dr. Elliot's six-foot shelf, huh? <laughs> Wrestler, uh, McGinnis, uh, haven't you got a ring name like Gorgeous Sam or The Blimp or Derriere Dan or something? Huh? No, what do they call you in the ring? And remember, we're on the radio. <laughs> they call me Irish Terry McGinnis. They call you Irish Terry McGinnis? What part of Romania do you hail from? Huh? <laughs> the Irish part. Now, Miss Horan, let's get back to you. It's much safer. Now, there's a big article about me in the October Radio Mirror magazine. Suppose I breeze down to your library next Sunday afternoon. Would you help me find the magazine? No, I wouldn't. Well, that's not very cooperative. Why not? Well, the public library is not open on Sundays. <laughs> well, I'll be bound, huh? <laughs> How's business, then? Very quiet. Very quiet. <laughs> well, you're holding your own, anyhow. Uh, Miss, uh, Miss Horan, as a librarian, do you like to wrestle? I never have wrestled. Well, maybe that's why you're not married huh? <laughs> Well, Miss Horan, here's something I know you'll fall in love with instantly George, tell her about it Well, it's a luxurious sterling silver compact by Elgin American It's hand engraved with a 14-karat gold picture frame border How do you like it, Miss Horan? Very beautiful And for our wrestler, something his wife will thoroughly appreciate a sterling silver compact just like it by Elgin American. I know she'll love it. Now tell me, glamorous Gus, how much do you weigh? Huh? Two hundred and forty pounds, six foot two. All that meat and no vegetables. <laughs> Except the cauliflower ear. <laughs> you know, uh, Terry, there's an ugly rumor going around that some professional wrestling matches are fixed. Is there anything to this? Absolutely not. That's an ugly rumor. <laughs> How many ugly rumors have you wrestled in your time? <laughs> now let's play You Bet Your Life. If you can beat our other two couples in the quiz, you'll get a crack at the $1,000 question. Fenneman, remind our listeners how much the first couple won. The newlyweds won $155. Here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. What question category did you select? Paper money. Nicknames for paper money. Here's your first question. How much uh, will you bet? $5. $5. How much money is a grand? $1,000 is right. They're on their way. They have $25. Remember, you're going for $1,000 tonight. Now, how much of your $25 will you try? Ten. Ten? All right. How much money is a fin? Five. $5 is correct. Now they have $35. You now have $35. And here's your third question. How much of the $35 will you attempt? Ten. Ten. Spend a little more. <laughs> Let's spend $25. All right, $25. All right with you, Mary. How much money is a sawbuck? $10. $10 is correct. They're on their way. They have $60. All right, you've got $60. Here's your last chance to beat the other couples. How much of the $60 are you going to risk? $50. $50. Is that all right with you, Mary? All right. How much money is a case note? How much money is a one? A case note. C-A-S-E. $50. No, it's $100. No, I'm sorry. It's one dollar. They wind up with ten dollars.
and good luck from Elgin American Contacts. Now, in just one minute, our last couple will play You Bet Your Life, and then we know it gets a $1,000 question. Benjamin, now it's your turn. All right, Groucho. Listen. Those are waves caressing the shores of Mallorca, the most romantic island in the Mediterranean. Here on Mallorca, after searching the corners of the world, Elgin American has found the most perfect pearls ever created by man. Pearls worthy of the Elgin American name. Now, these pearls can be yours. Rich, lustrous, glowing with a deep-sea beauty all their own. Elgin American pearls are perfectly matched, superbly styled, with glamorous, luxurious clasps, and fashioned into wonderful single, double, and triple-strand necklaces, as well as ropes, chokers, and graceful earrings. Presented in their beautiful jewel and gift boxes, Elgin American pearls are truly the most magnificent gift you can give or receive. Yet, prices start at just $2. The finest simulated pearls at any price. Buy them tomorrow. Treasure their opalescent beauty forever. Wear them proudly. For these are Elgin American pearls. Now then, we soon know who's going to earn the most money and get the chance at the $1,000 question. George, who's leading so far? Well, the newlyweds are leading with $155. And here's our final couple. They've been in the waiting room off stage, so they don't know the secret word is chair. Our studio audience selected a druggist and a housewife to be next. And here they come. Mrs. Margaret Harvey and Mr. Quentin Snavely meet Groucho Marx. <laughs> Welcome, folks. Welcome for Elgin American Compacts. If you say the secret word at any time we're talking, I'll hand over $100 in cash. It's a common word, something you'll find around the house. A druggist and a housewife, eh? Mr. Quentin uh, Snavely? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. You're the druggist, I presume. That's right, sir. <laughs> Where are you from, Doc? Santa Monica. Mrs. Margaret Harvey. Uh, what's your hometown? Philadelphia. Quentin, uh, are you married? Yes, I am. My wife first became interested in me in a drugstore. She fell in love with my picture on a bottle of iodine. <laughs> Now, aspirin tablet, as a, as a druggist, just what do you do? What do I do with an aspirin tablet? No, what? <laughs> well, there are only so many things you can do with an aspirin tablet. I say, as, as a druggist, just what do you do? I fill prescriptions. Don't you sell anything besides drugs in your drugstore? Oh, yes. We, uh, we sell football tickets and... Uh... <laughs> what? That's a nice combination. Aspirin and football tickets, right? <laughs> Uh, Imagine a fellow has arthritis and comes in and gets a football ticket, huh? <laughs> what does your husband do, M uh, Mrs. Harvey? He fills crates in a warehouse. Fills crates in a warehouse? <laughs> fills them with what? Well, anything they have there to fill them with. <laughs> well, that seems like a pretty simple job. <laughs> Just grab anything around there and throw it in a box. Huh? <laughs> I don't think we're quite clear on this. I mean, <laughs> after he fills this, these crates with this debris, <laughs> what happens to these crates? Well, they ship them out. How did, how did you meet him? Was he throwing you in one of the crates? In the... I met him in a cemetery. You met him in a cemetery? Yes. He just went from one box to another. <laughs> Tell me, Mrs. Harvey, uh, was, was he alive when you met him? Very much so. 
What was, he, what was this ghoul doing out there in the cemetery? Well, he was a grave digger. He sounds like a lot of fun, this kid. <laughs> what were you doing in the cemetery, Mrs. Harvey? Huh? Well, I almost made a shortcut through the cemetery. You made a shortcut and ran into him? You had a hobby of reading epitaphs? Yeah. I mean, in the evening, by the fire, you mean? From work, I used to cut through there and I read the epitaphs. I see. Yeah. And? Was his name on one of them? <laughs> well, that's a nifty way to start a romance. <laughs> so, what was he doing? Well, when I was reading on the epitaph, I saw the picture of this man, and he was a gruesome-looking fella, and I said, gee, you're ugly. And as that, somebody says, so are you. And when I came to, there were three grave diggers standing around me. Are you sure you, you weren't watching Hamlet? <laughs> These grave diggers were explaining what had happened. I see. They you said, knocked them dead, huh? There was one grave digger was in the grave eating his lunch. When he That's what they call a box lunch. Huh? <laughs> I'm going to lock my door tonight when I get home. <laughs> so? I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm not being rude. I'm just trying to find well, out more. Well, when I did wake up, I was sitting in one of those chairs, you know, if they had not <laughs> Harvey, you said chair, and that's the secret word, and that means you win $100 right now, and there it is. Congratulations. <laughs> Now, where were we when the chair broke, huh? <laughs> Well, uh, he, he said he felt very sorry for what he had said to me. And then he threw a wreath on you, I suppose? <laughs> Doc, uh, tell me, how much does your uh, average prescription cost? They start from 50 cents up, but the average prescription is about $2. Mm -hmm. And how much do the ingredients cost you? Great <laughs> figures. 20 cents up. What do you mean, up? Up to 22? And... <laughs> you mean you have the nerve to charge two bucks for something that only costs you 20 cents? Well, we have our overhead to figure in, our rent, and uh, the knowledge and experience in filling those prescriptions. Well, that's a pretty big pill to swallow. <laughs> you know, I've often wondered, how important is the soda fountain to a drugstore? Does it bring in much business? Well, it, it brings in the trade, and they buy other things in the store. Well, that sounds logical, I guess. After you have a pumpernickel sandwich on Liverwurst, huh? <laughs> and a banana split, they stagger over to the drug department and buy enough bicarbonate to cover the whole rent, I suppose. <laughs> well, I've got a prescription for both of you. Take thou these gifts from our sponsor. This is Harvey. Pearls for you. Elgin American's beautiful pearls. They're the finest pearls made by man, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy them. They're beautiful. And drug is Snavely, the perfect gift for your wife. Elgin American's exclusive heart-shaped compact that's definitely different. It's jeweler's bronze that looks like gold. That's the best seller in our store. Ha <laughs> ha, there's a man. <laughs> Tell me, do you ever have emergencies in your drugstore other than your wife coming in and catching you shaking up a blonde for a bromo? <laughs> I mean, shaking up a bromo for a blonde? <laughs> Let's forget the whole thing, huh? <laughs> Mrs. Harvey, what kind of first aid equipment do you keep around the house? Oh, I have iodine, corn plasters, bunion plasters. <laughs> you have a lot of foot trouble, I take it, huh? <laughs> 
That's some hot putting it through that cemetery. <laughs> What else? Just iodine, corn flasks, foot flasks, well, no art supports? I have headache powders. Headache powders. Yeah. Huh? I'd like to meet that husband of yours sometime. <laughs> Are there any items missing from that list that uh, she should have in her home, Mr. Snavely? Well, she didn't mention a tourniquet, and everyone should have one. Tourniquet, huh? You mean like a tennis tourniquet? <laughs> what, what's, a, what's a tourniquet, huh? Well, a tourniquet is uh, a apparatus that you put around the arm. No, so the blood. It stops the blood? Is that good? <laughs> I'm trying to get mine started and he's stopping it. <laughs> what is that for? A snake bite? That's right. What does it cost? It costs $4.95. Just for a tiny kit? No, that's part of a snake bite kit. That's the whole kit. The whole kit? <laughs> How old is the kit, huh? <laughs> Now, Doc, suppose Mrs. Harvey came into your drugstore and told you she just had an argument with her husband and she wanted to buy a hundred sleeping pills and a pound of arsenic. What would you do, huh? I'd be suspicious. (laughs) You're a pretty shrewd cookie, Doc. But tell me, would you sell it to her? Not without a prescription. I see. You have no objection to her knocking off her husband as long as she has a prescription. Well, you're a very interesting couple, and, Doc, I've been ribbing you druggists, but I didn't mean it, really. The druggist on the corner is an American institution. He's been keeping me hopping for years. (laughs) Now, Mrs. Harvey and Doc, you're going to play your bet your life, the Elgin American game, for $1,000. You run your $20, and the more than the other couples, you get the chance at the big question later. I can't tell you how much they won, but George is off stage to remind our listeners. The newlyweds are still ahead with $155. Here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. What question category did you select? Nursery rhymes. Nursery rhymes. Yes. Well, you ought to be good at that after those uh, obituaries and epitaphs. <laughs> huh? Now, here's your first question. How much will it be? How much are you going to bet? $10. $10? All right. How many bags of wool did the black sheep have? Take a guess. Three. Three is right. Right enough to bet. Well, they're on their way with $30. You sneaked in under the wire that time. Now, remember, you're going for $1,000 tonight. How much of your $30 will you try? We'll try, uh... 20 What was the name of the kid that ran around town in his nightshirt, rapping at windows to see if all the other kiddies were in bed? Take a guess. Ah, uh, the bell is tolled, and I'm sorry. It was Wee Willie Winky. They now have $10. That is pretty tough one. Now, here's your third question. You have $10 left. How much are you going to try now? Who bet five? What was Miss Muffet eating when the spider frightened her? Curds and whey. Curds and whey is right. Well, they're on their way again. They have $15. Here's your last chance to beat the other couple. How much of the 15 are you going to try? Ten. All right, ten. What skinny guy could eat no fat? Jack Spratt. Jack Spratt could eat no fat. And they wind up with a grand total of $25. And that means the newlyweds with $155 get the chance of the $1,000 question. The name Elgin American means the very finest quality, designing, finish, and craftsmanship. The best value in exquisite compacts, gorgeous simulated pearls, magnificent dresser sets, Magic action lighters, wondrous lighter cases, distinguished cigarette cases, handsome military sets, fascinating musical humidors. 
Your favorite store has a complete assortment of the newest Elgin American styles right now. See them. And for your own proud use, for thrilling prestige gifts, always buy Elgin American. And here's the winning couple, Groucho, the newlyweds. Well, back again to try for $1,000, eh? Good luck. I'll give you 15 seconds to decide on a single answer between you, so talk it over thoroughly and no help in the audience, please. Think of your map now. Which of the 48 states extends the closest to the North Pole? Which state of the 48? What answer have you two decided upon? Wisconsin. No, I, I'm sorry. The correct answer is the Lake of the Woods projection in Minnesota is the northernmost point in the United States. So that means the big question next week will be worth $1,500. But for beating the other couples, Groucho, they receive the new amazing Apollo 16-millimeter movie projector to show Hollywood sound movies and moving pictures you take yourself. And in addition, you receive those lovely gifts from Elgin American and you won $155 in cash. That makes it a very profitable evening all around. Congratulations and thanks to both of you. The Elgin American Show, You Bet Your Life, is a John Goodell production. Transcribed from Hollywood, directed by Bob Dwan and Bernie Smith. Music by Jerry Fielding. Remember, next week's Big Question pays $1,500. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday night at this time for You Bet Your Life, starring Groucho Marx, presented by the creators of America's most beautiful compacts, smartest cigarette cases, and finest dresser sets, Elgin American. Tonight, folks, have you looked at your compact lately? It was a good night for the newlyweds, even if they flubbed the answer to the big question about the state closest to the North Pole. Remember that next time it comes up, Minnesota, if you're talking about the lower 48, which they would have been in 49. The couple did get the $100 for uttering the secret word, chair, and that was You Bet Your Life from October 5th, 1949, back when George Fenneman gave out souvenir gifts, including cigarette cases and Humidors, you don't get those just every day, from sponsor Elgin American. We'll round it out with the shadow next. This is Skywave Audio Theater. Two years after Orson Welles handed off the role of the shadow, William Johnstone, after an audition that included a lot of people, took it up, and Marjorie Anderson took over the voice of the lovely Margot Lane. The shadow's adversaries were often unhinged megalomaniacs bent on some kind of world domination. Occasionally, though, smaller, more personal confrontations lit up the radio dial where the shadow was concerned. Is this the case with a story called Ghost Town? It's William John Stone as the shadow from October 6, 1940. (laughs) 
shadow knows. <laughs> In just a moment, the shadow starts his thrilling adventure. But first, a word about this invisible enemy of the underworld. The shadow, mysterious character who aids the forces of law and order, is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. As the shadow, he is the mortal enemy of all those who would work evil upon their fellow men. Cranston is gifted with the hypnotic power to cloud men's minds so that they cannot see him. This hypnotic power is the result of years of research in the mystical orient. The shadow does not bear a charmed life, yet he defies death in all its forms to aid mankind. Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the shadow belongs. Today's story, Ghost Town. Well, there it is, Miss Lane. Mr. Cranston. Right there below it. That's the famous old coal mine in town of Bat Creek. Well, it certainly looks authentic, God. See, Lamont, it's just like the movies. Yes, Martha. That howling coyote's probably wrecked the Wonder Dog. Uh, we better be traveling down the hill if you want to visit the town before dark. Here, give you a boy. Come on. Come on. Well, guide, I understand that there's quite a story to be told about Bad Creek. Yes, sir. Yes, indeed. Toward the end of the last century, Bad Creek was the rip roaringest mining town west of the Mississippi. Man and boy, there ain't never been another place like it. Easy, boy. Say, is the path this narrow all the way down the cliff? Yeah, pretty near. Quite a sheer drop. But if you just keep your horse close up to the side, ma'am, there ain't no danger of falling much. That's encouraging. Yeah. I reckon the thing Bad Crick's best known for is the time Elvaris, the Mexican bandit, shot his aunt Paul's sweetheart, Carmen Cedar. They read a song about that. Oh, yes, I know the song. It's almost as famous as Frankie and Johnny in American folklore. Yeah. Well, we better be getting down faster. It'll be dark soon. Oh, boy! Look out! Hold on! Easy! Oh! Sorry, partner. I didn't mean to bump you. My horse just swerved there. Lamont, you almost went over the side of the cliff. Oh, don't be alarmed, ma'am. Man and boy, I ain't never seen no one go off here yet. Well, man and boy, there's always a first time. Yeah. Come on, boy. Come on. Is there anyone living in Bat Creek now? No, sir. Bad Creek's a ghost town. Ain't been a soul lived there for over 45 years. Except, of course, old Pop Evans. Who's Pop Evans? He's an old crackpot who run a hotel when Bad Creek was really operating. Then when the gold gave out and the miners deserted the town, Pop just hung on. Man and boy's been there ever since. Waiting for the town to be revived? Yeah, something like that. He's a bit pet now. Thinks this hotel is still thriving like it used to. <laughs> well, here we are in the town. Oh, boy. Oh. So this is ghost town. Gosh, look at those buildings, Lamont. They're almost falling to pieces. Yes. The deserted streets. So quiet. Uh, we'll just take a quick run down the main street, folks, and get up to the hills again. Oh, no. Let's really stay and explore the place. Well, of course. Give us a chance to look around. Oh, no, no. You can't stay here. No, sir. Well, why not? Partner, when I told you Bad Creek was a ghost town, I didn't just mean it was a deserted village. It's really a town of ghosts. What? Well, what do you mean? I mean that the ghosts of them who lived in Bad Creek when it was a gold mine and camp have been seen here at night, reliving their days of glory. There's been shooting, and even dead bodies that weren't so pretty to look at, that have been found in these lonely streets. Well, that's all right, guys. You can't scare us. 
I can think of nothing more enjoyable than spending an evening with the bandit Alvarez and his sweetheart Carmen Cita. Yeah, there's been others who said the same things you're saying, ma'am. They spent a night here, too. The next day, they was found raving mad or dead. Why, if you'd seen them folks like I'd seen them, their eyes popping, their faces all twisted like with fear, and then that we found alive wasn't like humans at all. You wouldn't believe it unless you'd seen it. Well, how do you feel about staying now, Margot? Lamont, are you afraid to face the goats? Well, I was thinking of you. Well, if you're thinking of me, you'll agree to stay. Then it's settled. We stay. Then you're staying alone, partner. I'll go up to the hills. Well, where is this Pop Evans Hotel? That's down the street a ways, ma'am. You'll see a sign. But look here, ma'am. Won't you change your mind? Man and boy, I've... Man and boy, I've never met a ghost, and I'm not passing up the opportunity. <laughs> well, there's your answer, guide. All right. I'll be back here in the morning. I must say that I'm expecting to find that both of you will have met up with the same fate as them others who dared to face the ghosts of Bad Creek. be the place, Margot. Oh, fella. Can you read that sign? What there is left of it. Evans Imperial Waldorf Grand Hotel. I wonder why I left out the wrist. <laughs> we'll tie the horses to the pitching post. All right. Yeah. All right. Down you come. Uh, thanks. Come on. Hasn't it gotten dark quickly? Not uh, changing your mind about staying here, Margot. No, of course not. Well, then... Shall we enter the Imperial Waldorf Grand Hotel? Definitely. My lorgnettes, if you please. We are fresh out of lorgnettes, but I can give you my extra flashlight. It might be more useful. I wish one of the ghosts would fight in that coyote. Might as well get used to it. Right, watch these steps. Oh. Boards are all caved in. Just imagine now what the rooms are like. Yeah. Well, here's the door. You first, madame. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, Margo. I neglected to notice that there were no hinges. I don't see how any self-respecting ghost could live in a place like this. Well, you know how ghosts are. Come on, let's go inside. Well, I guess this is the... I mean, I guess this is the lobby. Yeah. From the looks of things, we're the first guests to arrive since the gold miners left. Look at the pictures on the wall. They're so covered with dust, you can't even see them. Mm-hmm. Come on. Hmm? What are those shadows? Those shadows moving on the wall. <laughs> those are bats, my dear. Hmm. Nice, playful bats. We're attracted by our flashlights. Hmm. I wish that coyote would howl again. He sounded so friendly compared to this. <laughs> not uh, frightened, are you, Margot? Frightened? No. Of course not. Why, I... Lamont! Someone over there standing in the corner. Where? Right there by the desk. Margot, do you know what that is? No. That is one of the last survivors of a vanishing race. A cigar store Indian. <laughs> a cigar store Indian? Yes, yeah, tomahawk and all. Well, I... Well, you can't blame me for being... Well, <laughs> you know, I've never met a cigar store Indian before. Well, I'll see if I can arrange a formal introduction. Well, Big Chief Snaggletooth. Come I... on. Huh. If that's another cigar store Indian coming down those stairs, it's the first one I've ever seen that walked. Well, it's an old man. But that must be Pop Evans. He's such an old man. Long white hair and wrinkled whiskers. Good evening, partners. Good evening. Good, good evening. Welcome to the hotel. Thank you. 
You wish rooms, I presume? Yes. Yes, we do. Step over to the desk, please. Thank you. Watch out for that hole there in the floor. I've been telling the porter to fix it up, but he's just forgetful, I guess. Just forgetful. Well, watch your step, Don't worry. Uh, here we are. Well, dust on the register. I'll have to speak to that clerk. He's getting careless, too. That's the way it is in the hotel business, you know. you got to watch him all the time. Blow this dust off. <coughs> oh, excuse me. More dust than I thought. I'll spin the register around and let you sign in. He needs oil. Sign right below that last name, please. Look, Lamont. That last registration was in 1895, 45 years ago. Yes, well, you see, ma'am, business has been kind of slacking off lately. Yes, I would say you've been experiencing a lull. There seems to be a slight difficulty here, Mr. Evans. Uh, no ink in the well. In fact, there's no point in the pen either. No? That's funny. I told that bellboy to always keep them pens in shape. Careless. Careless are all careless. Here, use my pen, Lamont. Thank you. We'd uh, like our rooms to be on the same floor, please. Same floor? Oh, let me see. Yes, yes, I think I can accommodate you. You just come this way, please. All right. Oh, uh, Mr. Evans, I, I understand that there are ghosts to be seen here in Bad Creek. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Elvarez, Carmen Sita, all the old-timers. They're very good friends of mine. Uh, up these stairs, please. Do you seriously believe that their spirits are still around, Mr. Evans? Believe? Why, ma'am, I've been seeing them for years. But I wouldn't be too curious about them if I was you. They ain't fond of strangers. No, sir, not one bit. Now, this here room can be for you, ma'am. In your room, sir. It's just down the hall. Oh. Well, is it all right to go in? I mean, has the room got a floor? Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Go right in. We can open our packs and have our supper in your room, Margo, if you don't mind. Mind? If you think I'm going to stay here. What's that? Well, it's a piano. And a woman singing. Yes. Sounds like they started their evening's business at the Crystal Saloon. Well, who are you talking about? Uh, the spirits. That's Carmen Cedar singing now. Carmen Cedar? Hey, if it disturbs you, I'll send word to the sheriff to have him tone it down. He's serious, Lamont. He honestly believes that those are spirits that we're hearing. Ghosts of people who've been dead 40 or more years. Oh, she's got a sweet voice, ain't she? No wonder Elvarez is so loco about her. Mr. Evans, where is the Crystal Saloon? Just down the street. Come on, Margo. Where are you going? To the Crystal Saloon. This is our chance to learn something of Mr. Evans' ghost. Oh, singing and playing have stopped. Come on, Margot. We may still be in time to see them. Well, I, I guess they're gone. Yes. Peculiar behavior for ghosts. Well, there's the piano over there. Let's have a look at it. Lamont, this, this place is just as it must have been long ago. Why, there's still glasses on the bar, and the chairs are still set around tables. If it weren't for the heavy dust, you'd almost believe that, that they were open for business tonight. 
Well, that's odd. What? The same heavy dust that you speak of is covering the keys of the piano. And yet we heard it play. Was there another piano? No. Not here in this room. What was that? Let's find out. Stop! Stop! He's riding up toward the hills. Did you see him as he went past? Not distinctly, no. He was dressed in the costume of old Mexico. The ghost of Alvarez. Or someone pretending to be the ghost of Alvarez. Come on, we better see what happened at the hotel. All right. Look, Lamont, on the hotel steps, there's a man lying there. Yes, let's hurry. Uh-huh. Lamont, uh-huh. he's writhing in pain. Uh-huh. So shot he could. Yes, uh-huh. this man was the victim. Uh-huh. I'd rather you didn't look at him, Margot. Uh-huh. He's been shot through the head. Oh, but he's still alive. Uh-huh. Yes, we'd better go in and find Pop Evans, uh-huh. get some water and some bandages. Come on, Margot. Uh-huh. Well, he certainly isn't one of the ghosts. No, ghosts never bleed. Mr. Evans? Mr. Evans? Yes. Oh. oh, you're right here. Mr. Evans, there's been a man seriously wounded right outside your door. We must have some water and bandages quickly. <laughs> Do you hear me, ma'am? Yes, yes, I hear you. But don't get excited. Them's just my friends, the spirits, having a little fun. Listen, Mr. Evans, if you'll just step outside and look, you'll see that this is not a spirit this time. <laughs> sure, sure, I'll come out and look. I've seen the same show a hundred times, but I'll look again. Sure, anything to please a customer. Now, where is this mortally wounded individual? All right. But he's gone. A month. <laughs> well... Are you satisfied? No. No, I'm not a bit satisfied. I suppose you'll be wanting to check out after this little scare. Quite the contrary, Miss Evans. We're more determined than ever to spend the night here. And before morning, I personally guarantee you that we will have exploded for all time the legend of Bad Creek. had coincided with the verses of the song Elvarez and Carmen Sita. Remember it? Yes. Yes, in the first verse of the song, Carmen Sita is singing to the gold miners in the crystal saloon. That's right. And in the second verse, Elvarez rides through the town and shoots his rival on the steps of the hotel. <laughs> now we have something to work on. All we have to do is wait for them to begin to enact the next verse. Well, let me see, Lamont. What is that next verse? Mm. Alvarez and Carmen Seaton, daddy. Uh, now, wait a minute. That's it, that's it. Later on that very evening, down the main street, he did ride. That's you it. remember? Well, that's it. And in the third verse, Alvarez rides back to the crystal saloon and shoots the girl. Yes, yes. And in the fourth verse, the, uh, fourth verse, the, uh, 
Funny, I can't remember a bit of it now. Well, is that where the sheriff's posse hangs him? No, 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 no. That's much later in the song. Uh, the other I don't remember it either. Oh. Well, at least we know what's going to happen next. You mean happen now? Can we go to the Christmas Saloon? No, no, it's too late for that. They can stop before we get there. I'd rather investigate this thing. You wait right here in this room, Margot. Here? Oh, Lamar. I'm sure that nothing will happen to you, so please stay. I must do this alone. Well, where are you going? To Pop Evans' room. He's going to receive a visit from the shadow. lamp. Find time for callers. There. There we are. Now, say, where are you? Didn't someone speak to me? Yes, I spoke to you, Mr. Evans. But I don't see you. I'm standing right beside you, Mr. Evans. But you can't see me because I've clouded your brain with my hypnotic power. You, you mean... You're invisible? Invisible. Uh, a ghost, huh? A real ghost has come at last, eh? <laughs> I, I told them. I told them that. I told them that someday a real ghost would come along and spoil their little game. Well, I'm mighty glad you come, Mr. Uh, uh... Men call me the Shadow. Uh, yes, yes, Mr. Shadow. I'm mighty glad you come. They're going to be sorry now, ain't they? You real ghost is going to give them a tussle, huh? Who are they, Mr. Evans? They? Why, they's the ones that's been scaring folks with their pretending to be Alvarez and Carmen Cedar. Murderers, that's what they've been. Plain murderers. But who are these people? What are their names? Their names? Yes, yes. Why, you should know that. One of them is... Mr. Evans. Oh. Mr. Evans. It shocked me. Who? Who was it? It must have been. It must have been. He's dead. Is that you, Lamont? Lamont. Why didn't you answer me? The... Shut up! You little fool. It is useless to struggle, senorita. You are coming with me. We are leaving here. Stop biting me, you little spitfire. Now I shall take you for a little horseback ride, senorita, and make the most of it. It shall be the last ride you will ever take. Ten Santo. Now, up we go. There you are. Shut up, you. Come on, Santo. Hey! Hey! Now, senorita, we are in one of the tunnels at the Singlaise Gold Mine. And I don't think that you should hope anyone will find you here. This mine has been abandoned for almost 50 years. Through this door, please. Step in the room. Hello, Alvarez. You brought back company. <laughs> yes. 
I've brought up one of the guests from the Evans Hotel. Oh, Mr. Dane has been nosing around all night? He's the one. It's the guy she had with her. We'll return for him later. Where's Eddie? I'm right here. That man. That's the one who was shot in front of the hotel. <laughs> That's right, sister. But that wound in your head. That was a little trick we learned from some movie folks that was here once. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> Not too good. And I suppose this woman was the one who sang as Carmen Cedar. Yeah. How'd you know? I'd recognize that off-key voice any place. Say, another crack like that. Now... So I'm finally meeting the ghost of Bad Creek. I guess you could call us that, senorita. Well, why don't you take off your mask, Alvarez, so I can see you, too? I never take off the mask. Well, why did you bring me here? What do you want of me? We have decided, senorita, that you should become one of us. Just what part would I play in this ghost business? Well, we have always felt that our performance would be more effective if we only had a corpse. A real corpse. You mean... You mean that I... I would be... Yes, senorita, you would be the corpse. No, no. And I think that you will give your first performance this very evening. We will exhibit you for your companion back in Bad Creek. Now, have you any preferences? Preferences? What do you mean? Well, would you rather have a bullet hole perhaps in your head? A real bullet hole this time, of course. Or would you prefer a knife? No, let me out of here. You can't do this to me. Since you won't make your own choice, senorita, I shall make one for you. A knife would be much more effective. No, no. Eddie, you will use your knife, please. You do those things so artistically. Okay. Oh, no, let me go. Let me go. Ah, no, now it'll be all over in a second, no. sister. Steady now. <laughs> drop that knife, Eddie. Huh? What? Let go of that girl and drop the knife. Who was that? I don't know. Since you won't drop the knife, I'll have to knock it out of your hand. Well, the knife was knocked out of my hand. I didn't see no one do it. What is this? What's going on? That voice is right here in this room. The voice is still here in the room. You needn't look around for me. I've used my hypnotic power so that you cannot see me. Who are you? I am called the Shadow. The Shadow? I've heard of him. Now, Mr. Alvarez, we shall remove your mask. No, no, take your hands off me. Yeah. Now we see what you look like. How do you like it? Why? Why, you're the guide who led Mr. Krantz and me to Bad Creek. Well, what of it? Why have you tried to frighten people away from Bad Creek? What secret have you here? You've been willing to resort to murder to protect. We like to be alone, that's all. It wouldn't be gold, would it? Answer me. Is it gold? Why don't you find out? On my way in here, I saw that there'd been some recent diggings in this mine. When I examined it, I saw that you'd struck a vein of pure gold. That's why you've tried to frighten people away. You're stealing this gold from a mine that does not belong to you. Yeah? What can you do about it? I can turn you over to the authorities. All of you. On charges of larceny... And murder. Listen, Shadow, you've gone far enough, see? You ain't telling us what to do. Nobody is. We've been prepared for just such a happening as this. Well prepared. There's enough dynamite planted in this mine to blow the whole work hard in the skyrocket. No, no, don't use the dynamite. <laughs> Shut up, Eddie. Maybe we can't see you, Shadow, but when I pull the switch, you'll die just like the rest of us. Hey, he, he don't know what he's saying, Shadow. I don't, huh? Well, let's pull the switch and see. No, stop him. Don't touch that switch. Let me go. You hear me, Shadow? Let go. Look, guys, you're knocking over the ledge. <laughs> well, you can't see me now either, Shadow. The fight is on even terms. 
Come on, where are you? Margo, come with me quickly. Can you hear me? We're going to try to get out of here. Well, where are you, Shadow? Are you afraid of me? <laughs> are you? Cut it out, will you? If you pull that switch, you'll kill all of us. Shut up. Why don't you try to stop me pulling the switch now, Shadow, huh? Wait a minute. Where's that girl? Must have made a break. I'm going to do the thing. Uh, me too. Oh, no, you don't. No one is getting out of here alive. just in time. Are you all right? Yes. But those people, those people we left in the mine. They're buried in there. There's nothing we can do. Oh, how awful. Lamont, how did you know where to look for them? Well, very simple, Margot. You remember how we followed the movements of the ghost by recalling the verses of the Alvarez and Carmen Peter song? Yes. Well, I finally remember the fourth verse. It tells of how Alvarez fled to the single ace mine on the hillside. I played the hunch that they were sticking to the song and came here. Lamont, from now on, man and boy, that's my favorite melody. next week's unusually thrilling shadow story, when Lamont and Margot venture into voodoo land to solve the weird mystery of the tropics. I wonder if you can help us. Uh, we're looking for the Nesbitt plantation. Nesbitt? Yes. Nesbitt plantation? Yes, yes. Keep away. Keep away from there. Keep away. Come back here. Come back. Lamont, did you see his face? Do you suppose he was a... A zombie? Today's program is based on a story copyrighted by the Shadow Magazine. The plot or fictitious. Any similarity to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. The weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. <laughs> that was quite a saloon that the Shadow and Margot walked into. One in need of some tidying up, to be sure. The name of the story, Ghost Town. It was The Shadow from October 6, 1940. The Shadow was determined to put an end to the legend of Bad Creek. And the whole charade came from a song. Marjorie Anderson was an English actress with a long career of about 30 years' worth on the BBC. From 1939 to 40, she was in this country, and from 43 to 44, and she was famous in America as Margot Lane during the episodes of The Shadow. And we'll step out of The Shadow for this week. I'm Norman Gilliland. Thanks for being with me. And I hope you can join me again next time around for more adventures in sound from Skywave Audio Theatre. <laughs>